Hey kids, next month's series on this podcast finally gives you the opportunity to become co-conspirators in the crimes carried out at the Cinemodities restaurant. We are now taking requests for movies, TV shows, visual albums, etc., and this is where we'll choose our episodes for November from. Reach out to us through email, cinemodities at gmail.com, or Twitter, at Cinemodities. We can't wait to hear from you out in listener land. And feel free to send in snack ideas with your requests. Are you prepared to be scared? I'm prepped. We're about to put the monster in Monstover. And it's gonna get spooky. Now! The following film contains some scenes that may be frightening for some viewers. Watch out for boos and bangs and oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming moments. Because they're in there. Parental guidance is recommended. with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic Swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob, the little person who lives inside Zach's mouth. This week, we are continuing on with the third, I believe third, true official episode of our Monstober series. Not Once again, not counting the bastard child of Goosebumps. Uh, and, you know, Zach and I, we sat down and we said, you know, what should we do for this third spot in Monstober? Since Zach has his fourth spot going through so many iterations, I don't get to touch. <laughs> he he kind of came to me and, and asked me for some thoughts on what we should do this week. And, and we both kind of agreed and said, man, we should really discuss something that doesn't have a, a lot of analysis behind it. We want to touch on something that no one else has really discussed ever and give our own fresh thoughts on it. And that's why this week we're discussing the 2002 Ted Bundy film by Matthew Bright. Is that correct, Zach? Yes, we are delving into again. We After three and a half hours, we figured you didn't get enough Ted Bundy. So we're going to discuss it in reverse this time. We watched the movie again backwards overlaid with the film playing in its normal speed so get ready folks we're going to do a live commentary of the ted bundy film backwards overlaid with the film playing normally (laughs) that's how i imagine it sounds backwards it sounds like a cat like dying fantastic so uh with that with that out of the way, of course, by the episode title that uh, I think, or we think, everybody reads before they click on these. I think that'd be cool if people were just listening to our podcast without, you know, looking at the title first. Um, but we are discussing not only the classic 1980 Kubrick film, The Shining, but also Room 237 to some extent. And I think this is really where I want to throw it over to Zach, because as the joke I made just a few minutes ago, you know, we're doing something that nobody has ever talked about. What are what are we going to do this episode? How are we not just going to repeat everything that's ever been said about The Shining before? What were your thoughts on that, Zach? Why why did this get a spot in Monstober? 
Well, much like how Rob was talking about last week, how like, oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 was a spot that was in Monster over the longest. It wasn't. It was The Shining. I've been watching. The Shining is one of those movies that I've always loved talking about. Mm-hmm. And because most people just think of it as, oh, here's Johnny. Yeah. yeah that's, it. That, that's the discourse for The Shining yep. for most people. It begins. That and Red there. Rum, I would say. I remember when I was a little kid, my parents would say Red Rum a bunch. Like that stuck with them for some reason. It took me years to actually see this movie and, you know, read the book by Stephen King to know where it was from. Yeah, that's pretty much like it's it's one of those movies that for mainstream audiences, it's rather just at the surface. It's very it's a very superficial film. It's just oh, weird and like kooky, extreme things happen at a hotel, cabin fever, ghost. Here's Johnny. Yep, no Ukraine. beer, no no beer, no TV. Make Homer go crazy. <laughs> oh, that's such a great episode. That's <laughs> such a great episode. Remember, folks, we can't say the word. We have to call it the shinning because. Don't want to get sued. <laughs> hey, I found a shortcut through hedge maze. Get away, you little! No, no, go easy on the wee one. His father's gonna go crazy and chop them all into haggis. What's haggis? <gasps> Boy, you read my thoughts. You've got the shining. You mean shining? Shh. You want to get sued? Uh, but yes, so that's why I fear, even though like The Shining's been done to death, like every other episode of Cinematis, we talk about how like, oh, there's some things that have like no like any sort of commentary about them on the internet, whether it be like Wonder Shows in the Ted Bundy movie. Like Rob has said numerous times now, there is no short of opinions on this film. None in the slightest, <laughs> as is shown by the uh, the pairing documentary that we watched with this. Yes, Room 237, for those of you who don't know, isn't just a uh, fictional room in this film. It's also a documentary by filmmaker Rodney Asher about psychotic fan theories about The Shining. Yeah, yep, yep. I, uh, I'm i glad we, we paired that with this one. I'd only seen Room 237 once. I'm glad I got to watch it again to remind myself of, of a lot of it because only certain parts had stuck with me. Um, the Shining is a different boat. I think I see The Shining at least once a year. Um, I, I think Zach and I have only ever maybe tangentially talked about it. The Shining, uh, it isn't one of like my favorite movies, but when, when I'm not watching it, but when I am watching it, I'm totally engrossed by it. Like it's this weird thing where it's like I have to get over the hill of starting to watch it. And once I do, I'm just in for the ride every single time. It's one of those films that I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to say that it's one of my favorite films. I'd say it's definitely one of those films that I, I, I admire very much. Um, and again, it's one of those things where it's like, just because you... I don't want to say it's in the same camp as Eraserhead, not at least in the conventional sense is how I usually use that like connotation. Sure. But I put it in there as like, okay, I don't, I would never say like, oh, like, you know what? I'm going to put The Shining on for a fun little romp for two and a half hours. Yeah, yes. It's like, no. This is a film that you watch for a very specific reason. I don't think it's just one of those films you just throw on a Sunday afternoon to kill the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like Rob said, I think it's a very hypnotic film. It's one of those movies, much like any other Kubrick film, that you put it on. You really can't kind of help but watch the rest of it once you get kind of like pulled enough into it. Yeah, and I, I kind of fell into that exact trap because um, I, I watched The Shining last night uh, before today's recording. And, you know, as I do, I usually set myself up to take some notes and I fell into the trap of just being enthralled by the movie and not taking very many notes. But thankfully, I've seen this so many times. I don't think I need to take notes. (laughs) Yeah, because I had. okay. we'll we'll get into context in a minute. I do. I do want to say, because 
you know, in the day and age we live in, trigger warning, there's an N-word in this movie. Yeah, I for completely forgot about I, that. Me too. Literally, my note at that point in the movie is all caps N-word alert. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it took me by complete surprise. It was just kind of just dropped so nonchalantly. And I was like, whoa, did that just happen? <laughs> um, but no, this is uh, The Shining is such... Uh, it's one of those movies, and I, I don't think we've ever, again, <laughs> the joke on Cinemonides that we've already talked about, uh, Animal Collective 800 times, Hack Snyder, God, we've discussed Hack Snyder more times between this and the Star Wars podcast, and it's like, this is the first time we've ever discussed a Stanley Kubrick film. Yep, yep, absolutely. And the thing about Stanley Kubrick is that the say his films are layered are an understatement, but at the same time, when you watch The Shining, you almost don't want to pick through it. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of one of the, uh, I, I can't believe, I thought we were going to come at different sides from this, but that that's one of the things why, I, I think I've said this to Zach before, but in only very briefly, the Room 237 documentary, I love the concept, I hate the content. Like, I, and, and this is might sound really weird to Zach, because Zach knows me, and they even mention it in, at the end of Room 30, 237, someone says, why did Kubrick make this movie so complicated? And another person says, well, why did Joyce write Finnegan's Wake? The Finnegan's Wake is something that deserves to be picked apart because there are so many layers and you can't just read that at a surface level. The Shining is something that allows itself with both. You can pick through it in detail and analyze as much as you want, but at the same time, you can just sit back for two and a half hours and watch it. And that's yeah. where I'm kind of torn, where it's like, I, I love some of the ideas, the concept, like I said, of Room 237, but you don't don't give me 30 minutes about moon landing conspiracies. Don't give me, you know, oh, yeah, yeah I just thought it'd be fun, and then I just spent 60 years of my life drawing maps of this movie. And it's like, I, I appreciate it. I've been there. I've wasted my time on detailing things like this. But I, I don't know. For some reason, with The Shining, I'm just against it, like— I think the best way to summarize this is there's a clip in room 237 when the moon landing conspiracy stuff is the f is the front piece. That's the section of the movie where it's one guy talking about all his moon landing conspiracies. And he talks about the shot of the room number 237 key. And moon he says, room. Moon yes, room. But here, here's the thing. I've thought this the first time I saw the movie and the second time I saw the movie, I'm so glad I get to say this on something recorded because it's my true opinion. The actual scene, of course, we'll put the clip in, plays out with the guy saying, of all the capital letters on this key, you can only spell two words, moon and room. And my first response is, you can also spell moron. And on the key are is the words room and then the w word N-O, which is an old uh, acronym for number, so room number 237, except that the only capital letters on the key are R-O-O-M and then the N from the acronym N-O, and if there's only two words that you can come up with that have those letters in them, and that's moon and room. And so on the key, the tag, it says moon room. And that is the moon room. This is where everything happens, and none of it's real. And it all has to be lied about. <laughs> That's how I feel. Like, I love conspiracy theory. Zach knows me. I'll, I'll dig deep into crazy nonsense with the best of them. 
But you cannot be that short-sighted in your conspiracy. And that's what I feel this movie, Room 237, comes off as and why I'm so against a lot of this deep analytical discussion of The Shining, at least in the way they present it. Because it's like you're you're clearly leaving things out. You're you're seeing things because you want to see them. At least that's what the sense I get from the people they interview in that film. Well, okay, because this is going to be a weird conversation, folks. Because I think we're assuming that everybody listening to this episode has seen The Shining at some point. Yeah, I was and about to say something similar. That you know, this is definitely, we're assuming you've seen this. We're not going to break is, this down. Yeah, this is not going to be a breakdown. I think there's only really one scene I want to dive into to a great extent, and it's near the end of the film. <laughs> Bear costume blowjob. Oh well, that I figured you'd get into that. I want to <laughs> get into the uh, the freezer door opening scene. Well, okay, we'll get to that. To answer, or I don't think Rob was asking a question, but to kind of respond to his statement, is that I, I've never, I, okay, I've been hooked on Room 237, the documentary, since the spring of 2013. And I've, over time, I've always, I've always been fascinated by this documentary. I love, as, as I become more of a mature film or cinephile, I've come to appreciate like behind the scenes discussions. Mm-hmm. More than like the actual film itself. Like I can like when it comes to like the makings of things like Alien, Jaws, um, any of these movies that kind of had like, I don't want to say horrible productions, I think that is the more interesting story than the final film. Sure. Like I've watched the, the behind the scenes documentary on Alien more than the film Alien itself. And I think Room 237 does a very specific job. In that we're never going to get that behind the scenes documentary on The Shining because A, most of the uh, Stanley Kubrick never let anybody in to do stuff like that. The Shining is actually one of the very few instances where he did because I know one of his daughters had like a camera and was filming like a lot of B roll on the set and it's on the Blu ray and DVD, but it's only like 20 minutes worth. It's like a criminally short amount of uh, content oh, okay. considering that she was, she was there for like a nice portion of the shoot. And, but you, Kubrick didn't really let anybody into his creative process in the sense of, and plus this was during the time of the eighties where people didn't shoot B rolls much as they like back in like the nineties and two thousands era. Never oh, mind now. Yeah, yeah. And even, even now they don't shoot, they don't shoot a lot of B roll now because they don't want, they don't want any of their dirty little secrets getting out there with mm-hmm. things like your major, like uh, Marvel films, your, your, I don't mean Marvel. I mean your superhero stuff. They don't want any of the how the sausage is made getting into the the ether of pop culture. Um, but no, I think Room Two Thirty Seven does an important job, and I don't see the film as like. I, I, like I've said numerous times, I always try to go find like a podcast in the projection booth. Did an episode on The Shining and Room Two Thirty Seven. Okay, and they're they're kind of doing what, what hopefully we're going to do here. They focused on The Shining through the lens of Two Thirty Seven, and the thing is, is that one of the guys talking in that episode was like, when I first watched Room Two Thirty Seven, I was very frustrated by like all the nonsense that it presents. And then yes. he goes over the over the years as I've watched this, I've seen that wasn't what the director of the film, Rodney Asher, was trying to do. He wasn't trying to make a film be understanding The Shining. He mm-hmm. was making a film. They even said, "How do you even classify this? It's not a documentary. It's not a scripted story. It's really its own weird sort of like space as a genre all to itself." Yeah, I, I consider it. Uh, especially on this last viewing, it's almost like, you know, a, a classier and more mature version of a listicle. 
Because I'm sure this exists where it's like, you know, boiling down. Kubrick did a lot of research into Colorado and took all these things and boiled them down to their narrowest elements. And it's like, yeah, the movie spends half an hour on it, but somebody probably has written that in a BuzzFeed article in three sentences. Yeah, but I think what this film is ultimately trying to get at is that it's more of an expose on the inner workings of fanaticism and film criticism. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's where I why I say more. I love the concept rather than the content because even the first time I saw it, I, I remember telling Zach. I think we were at dinner with what my parents and Bumpa, and for some reason this kind came up. And I love the way this movie starts, where the guys like the European poster had the wave of terror that swept across America now comes to Europe. And it's like, oh, well, do you think that's the movie? That's the book? No, it's the plight of the Native Americans. And I'm like, that's that's great. That's weird enough to start this movie. But then it goes on into, well, this is why I know about Native Americans. And Dr. Doolittle from the 60s was pathetic. And I'm like, what? What? We don't need this in this documentary. This is just him ranting, it seems. But I think that's the that's what he's trying to have, though. I think it's supposed to be... It's like a stream... Again, this really is kind of like a New Age experimental type of filmmaking because it's commentary narration over... Oh, God, I don't want to see B-roll, but it's other footage of other things yes. that are kind of, like, melded into the context of the narration slash commentary. And I do think at, when you look at it, as a complete package, not just picking out the commentary of the, like one of the five people sure. and what they're trying to get at. I do think this thing works. I think there really is nothing quite like it, and especially it's done on this. It's it's also focused on a topic that most film goers, even casual ones, can appreciate because mostly everybody's seen The Shining at some point in their lives. Absolutely. Like if you did. It's like if you were to do this on the cinematic equivalent of like a Finnegan's Wake. Like if you were to do this exact same film about Eraserhead, it would be very dense and you'd have a hard time getting people on board with it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But if you do it with The Shining, a film that, like you said earlier, it works on a very superficial level and it works the deeper and deeper you dig into it. And I think that's kind of the brilliance of picking The Shining as a focal point for this sort of, I don't even want to call it filmmaking, but for this sort of project. Okay, okay. And that's how I, like I said, we'll, we'll get back to the, sh the Shining, folks. It's not just going to be simply philosophical dissection of what kind of creative thing Room 237 is. Mm -hmm. But um, I think overall, the more and more I watch this, the more and more appreciated on different levels. Because and also, too, think about how crazy some of these theories are that these people say. And yet, between the narration commentary that's very stream of consciousness – the visuals also help convey the story to that by the end, you pretty much understand everything that has been told to you in the last 90 minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It does a good job in that aspect. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very fluid. It's very easy. I don't want to say it's, e it's very digestible because I do think you have to be paying attention. This is not like one of those things you put on at like a house party and everybody goes to different corners of the room. It, yes. It's not that. It's, it's not. What would you call it back during the 18s? Was it a party core? Party core, yep, yep. Yeah, it, it's not party core cinema. This isn't, this isn't the Avengers <laughs> Endgame where you can just put it on the TV and people will show up when there's an action sequence. Yeah, neither. remember, neither is Amazon Women on the Moon. Someone screamed no. at me when I tried that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't, I'm just thinking now the same person, would they scream about this in the same way they screamed about Arsenio Hall? <laughs> All right, context time. Oh, so, yeah. Context time. So, okay, I'm going to let Rob go first because I would imagine Rob's context is going to be just a tad shorter than mine is when it comes to this. Definitely, definitely. Um, I don't even think I know Zach's whole history with The Shining. Um, the thing I think I want to highlight first off 
uh, is that this isn't something I think Zach and I discussed to any great extent back when we were really, you know, getting to know each other, getting into movies. I have no recollection of me and you ever watching this together, watching parts of it. It's really only been since this podcast that I think Kubrick and The Shining has come up to a, a greater extent. Um, I think that's because of it took me a really long time to see 2001, A Space Odyssey. I didn't see that till I was in college. Like, I never saw that when I was younger. Um, and that's when I started to have a mature mind to be able to say, oh, Zach, like, this was great. Like, this movie worked for me on so many levels. And The Shining, I definitely saw when I was younger um, because I was so into Stephen King. And I think we said it on this podcast before that when I was younger, um, I would read through Stephen King books. Of course, I was always a bigger fan of the Richard Bachman books than the Stephen <laughs> King books. We're going to get to Thinner one day. Thinner's a great movie uh, because it turns into like a crime mob movie at a certain point with gypsies. Uh, anyway, so I was into Stephen King. The Shining was one of the ones I didn't read till a little later on. And right around the time I was kind of working through Stephen King, that's when I was starting to be like, okay, let's see the movies. Let's see the film adaptations or the, the TV miniseries. You know, I'm thinking of like uh, The Stand and stuff like that. And The Shining was one that I definitely noticeably picked up on the differences between the book and the movie as Room 30, 237 gets into, and I'm sure I'll get into a little bit more. Um, but I kind of liked both. I was... I was on the fence. I didn't really know what to think about either at the time, but I felt that I enjoyed them. And as time went on, The Shining just kind of fell by the wayside for me. And it really wasn't until I started getting into other Kubrick movies. Like in my sophomore year of college, my roommates and I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. For the first time I had seen I loved it. I showed my girlfriend at the time A Clockwork Orange. And that's, you know, another one of my favorite movies and favorite books. Um, although, you know, not Stephen King. So <laughs> this, uh, I think this whole thing kind of, you know, has just been forming itself where when I left, moved away from New York and I moved away from Zach and movies were still in my head and, and I never really met anybody who could, you know, parallel to Zach on discussion of, of things in a good way. Um, and it really took that time for me to, to realize what I was missing to get back into this mature filmmaking and stuff and to actually have a good discussion about it. And that's why only in like the last few years I say I watch The Shining, you know, once every year because it sticks with me so much now. Hell, I watch 2001 A Space Odyssey even more often. That The opening scene, the dawn of man or the birth of man, that, that's great. I'm always going to love that when a you know, monkey figures out they can hurt another monkey. That's, that is the birth of man. And so, yeah, I think that's my context where this was just something that just touched upon slightly throughout my life. And now that Zach is uh, kind of, you know, training me or, or pushing me to a more analytical mindset with some of this stuff, I really appreciate it in a lot better sense. So cool. thank you, Zach. <laughs> You're welcome, Rob. I, okay, I want, anytime he says the way I moved away from Zach, I want you to replace the words moved away with ran away. <laughs> Come on, he's, he's sugarcoating it, folks. Hey, okay, the Zach, moved, the, first, the first two moves were not into different time zones, okay? <laughs> but then I made up with it because the third move was two time zones away. Exactly. <laughs> it was subconscious, folks. He knew what he was doing all along. I, I think I do want to add to my context that ever since in these last few years, and I think this is important to this discussion and what I said about discussing it with you, a lot of the people I know out here in Colorado, when I talk to them, like, you know, we'll hang out. Uh, every weekend, every other weekend, we'll see each other at work, you know, in the middle of the week. It'll be like, oh, how's it going? And I'll usually say, like, oh, I watched The Shining. Like, that's what I did this past weekend. It was just, it, the time was right. So many people I talk to out here are like, I've never seen it. 
And the people that have seen it are kind of like, yeah, I didn't think it was that scary. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to you about this now. Because <laughs> it's not about if it's scary or not. And I think that's a question I want to pose for Zach, which he could answer before or after his context. I don't think of this as a horror movie, but it seems like that's the way people do think of it. It's a Monstober movie, don't get me wrong, but nothing about this really scares me or I feel should scare anybody. But that, of course, that's just my feelings towards it. Um, okay. But that, also, that shouldn't frame them. Like, no one should watch this movie and go, I wasn't scared, so it was stupid. Well, okay, P- people, especially when it comes to, okay, there's this thing that happens with horror movies, is that a horror movie, a good horror movie is never called a horror movie, it's called a thriller, or mm-hmm. something like that, it's like the Silence of the Lambs, Silence of the Lambs is a goddamn horror movie, I don't care what you say, but the problem is that people who are in, who are in prestige, or in the, un- put themselves on a pedestal, can't say they like horror movies, because horror movies means just crap. Uh, most most of what horror is is crap. So when you do get a gem, you can't call it that. It's kind of like what happened with Silence of the Lambs, Get Out, is that anytime you have something worth talking about, they have to elevate it so they don't seem like they're getting into the mud with everybody else. Okay, okay. And that's, and that's one of those things where a lot of people who love horror movies don't like that about this Hollywood and just entertainment and film criticism. But that's mm-hmm. something that you're never going to change. The people in power always get to figure out a way to put themselves on a higher plateau than the rest of us. Sure. Um, that, that's a conversation for another day. But um, no, that's how I see it, though. When it comes to people in The Shining, um, I don't know. I definitely say based on the Stephen King renaissance of adaptations that we're currently in, I would say that most people are on board with The Shining. It shows up a lot on cable. This time oh, okay. of the year, I'd say at least in October, it shows up probably once a weekend on AMC or one of your channels like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, again, and folks, we didn't do this. On, I think we we might have. Oh, I might have done it on purpose. Was that there is Doctor Sleep coming out in a couple of weeks? By the time you're hearing this, and we'll touch upon that later in the episode if we remember to do so. Because um, <laughs> there, there, there's a whole other can of worms there to open up if we have any time. I feel like um, if we, when you say if we remember, it's going to be one of those situations where it's like, you know, everybody wants to forget, but then that one kid's like, you didn't assign homework tonight. And it's like, oh, fuck. Because I don't want to think about that movie anymore. <laughs> well, I, oh, God, we have to get, okay. We'll get, but once we talk about the movie more, we'll get into that. Cause we need, you need to, there's some things that need to be explained about how The Shining um, kind of exists that before you can delve into what, why Dr. Sleep, I and I have issues with it or okay. why okay. Rob has some issues with it too. But no, my context to the shining, um, I've always ever since, I think I talked about it last week with the, the AFI a hundred years, a hundred thrills with the Dennis Hopper blue velvet. Um, <laughs> uh, when, yeah. when that aired in the summer of 2001, that really did introduce me to a ton of movies and I'm pretty sure that's how I got introduced to, to The Shining. Again, I, didn't, again, like I guess it was 100 movies, so a lot got thrown at me all at once. But that's, I think, how I got introduced to The Shining, A Clockwork Orange. Um, I'm not sure. 2001 might have been on there. I'm not certain. Yeah, 2001 definitely was on, on that yeah. list. Um, and that's how I was introduced to it. So I always knew about Stanley Kubrick. I was always aware of him as a filmmaker. And I think the next instance where I really, like, I think the first Kubrick movie, I always tried when I was in middle school to watch 2001, plus my father always raved about it, mm-hmm. because he, he was part of that generation where that was truly a, a mind-blowing thing. That was kind of like, well, okay. I, I think 
any any true student of film will understand the term the phrase 2001 was a life altering experience you're you're not a true cinephile unless you've had that experience with 2001 um but no it's like i always tried watching 2001 can never really get past the first like 40 45 minutes because it's it's science fiction with a capital sf it's, oh yeah it's, it's not star wars it's not space fantasy um but no, so like I tried watching that, and really the first Kubrick film I ever saw was A Clockwork Orange, and that was in the same kind of corridor as when I talked about Wonder Shows, and where I was really like I was latching onto any sort of media, and for the longest time, and even to this day, I, you know, I haven't watched A Clockwork Orange probably in at least ten years. Um, I I'd, I would say for the longest time that Clockwork Orange was my favorite film of all time that didn't have the word Star Wars in the title sure. or or Titanic. I've always had a partition. I have I have my favorite films that I'm not afraid to talk about and the ones that I really don't want to explain to people why I like them. And, <laughs> okay. and Titanic is on the list where I really don't want to explain to people why I like that film. Um, but no, so like I've always I've always my reverence for a Clockwork Orange was always high. And then it wasn't until the fall of 2009, as if Rob can remember when I got my my projector for Halloween and I was looking for uh, horror movie clips to play on the side of my house mm-hmm. that I went on to like eBay and for like a couple of bucks, I got a bunch of horror movies again, like your silence of the lambs, your a nightmare before Christmas, you know, that's not really a horror movie, um, Hannibal. And one of them was the shining. I'd really never seen the shining in any capacity. And to the point where if Rob remembers during web soup, web soup used to have a segment called WTF and the segment like clip that introduced the, the main thing from the internet was a reenactment of the bear the bear costume blowjob scene oh that's right yeah okay okay it's all coming back to me now when you first said web soup i was like i'm only gonna get these memories if you know the number to heaven but (laughs) you described it enough that I, i i i know what you mean yeah i remember this yeah, that was their intro for the WTF segment was like a re, uh, recreation yeah. of the bear, the bear costume blowjob. And I, it's funny for the longest and for I got a few because I think Web Soup started in 2009. But for a few months, I had no idea that was from The Shining. So I, I again, I again, like everybody else, I always knew The Shining as here's Johnny and then mm-hmm. Shelly Duvall screaming. And so I watched it. And I think I fell asleep through it. And I really, I didn't really have a high opinion of it. I really, I didn't put that much thought to it. And it wasn't until college. And unlike Rob, I didn't really have a group of people to show movies to. I never, I, I was always, like I've said before, like when it came to Star Wars, I was always the movie person. I, yep. I never had a, a movie peer in college. Um, in high school, Rob was the closest thing I had to that. Um, but so in college, I really kind of got, I don't want to say I got into Kubrick, but he really kind of was my bread and butter in a way. I never even realized it more subconsciously than consciously. Cause when I was in my film studies program, I would go up to the cinema professor and it was my first class with her where it was more of a class as opposed to a lecture hall. And we were, it was a course called significant cinema directors. And we had like a list of directors we could do. It was your, um, John Ford. It was your Hitchcock. It was a couple other more. You're you're, sure. you're really you think of oh god, there's a couple other ones that are on the tip of my tongue that I can't think of right now. Um, oh god, what was his name? Ford. Oh yeah, I already said John Ford. Oh god. Uh, oh my god, I can think of it. the guy who directed the first thing. Um, okay, Carpenter. Oh the the first thing. Oh god, it's like gonna drive way back me, in the day. God, it's gonna drive me nuts. I have to look it up, folks. Like, I'm sorry. I You're know not Rob, talking about John Carpenter. No, no. Rob hates it when I say. Uh, I have to say that um, we're looking something up. 
No, I, I, I don't. That. I don't know who directed the first thing. Oh my god, where is it? Where is it? Oh my god, where is it? I, I'm gonna know the name as soon as I see it. I as soon as I see it, I'm gonna know the name. Christian Nibby? Nibby? Howard Hawks. Howard ha- Hawks. Okay. Howard Hawks. There you go. Okay, folks. Ah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm yep. sorry. So it was that during that that we'd like pick from a handful of directors, and I went up to the cinema professor. This is before I knew her well, and I'm like, "Can I do the? Can I do Kubrick?" And I guess I had talked to her enough at that point. She's like, "I know you really like Kubrick, though, but like, I prefer you do something on the list." But I'm like Kubrick, and she actually yelled at me. She's like, "No!" I'm like, "Okay, then." <laughs> I, I actually got shouted down by a teacher. Um, anyway, though, no, she was she was really cool. And to this day, uh, I thank her for everything. She gave me uh, her and her husband gave me uh, a laser disc player, so they love me. To this, I th- hopefully they still love me. Nice. Um, but anyway, though, so like, no, I always thought about Kubrick, and he was always I, he was kind of like my obsession with him. Kind of came in the wake of David Lynch, to the point where I guess I kind of inadvertently and subconsciously latched onto him. That being Kubrick, because Lynch was always Lynch was still weird. Like Lynch, I, that I, I still haven't seen much. Like I still have never seen Wild at Heart. I've never watched All Fire Walk with Me. There, there's still a lot of Lynch that even I'm not I'm not prepared for mentally. I love Wild at Heart. <laughs> I, I bet you do, Rob. I bet you do. And we're going to talk about soon about the fact that there's apparently rumors that there's going to be a Twin Peaks season four. Which heaven, please don't let there be a season oh, four. It, season uh, three ended so perfectly. Don't ruin it. It really was. It really. The only way I would want a season four if the entire entirety of season four is even less sexier sex scenes than episode 18 of season three (laughs) um but no so like to the point where and then going forward in my uh, college career where there was a well it was an internship in kind name only where i think i've told rob the story where i was like a glorified ta for for a semester Mm, for mm -hmm. the male professor and it was me and this other guy whose name was Yun Fan, and I absolutely hated him because he was the most obnoxious person on the face of this earth that thought he was smarter than everybody. And like, I had to interact with him so much. He never did any work. He'd encourage kids to cheat on exams. He was the worst. And yet they always held him in higher esteem than me, and I could never figure it out. But anyway, though, that's a topic for another day. And so at the, toward like the final like month of the semester, the, the male cinema professor came up to us, and he's like, guys, how would you like to do like for one class, like I'll scrap whatever it is I'm supposed to be talking about and you each can pick your own movie and you can talk about it in front of the class as long as it's not like one of the genres we've already covered in the semester so far. That's and I'm teacher like, speak for I'm going to be hung over that day. So can my <laughs> TA do the work? <laughs> whatever it was, I was thrilled because I was really hoping like when this thing first started, I was really hoping for that. And I originally wanted to do drive. Uh, Nicholas Winding Reference Drive, but we already done like noir, so I was told no, I couldn't okay. do that. But I figured the next best thing was horror because, like, they both the cinema professors always hated horror films. They always considered it like a subpar uh, genre for the aforementioned reasons. And so I figured, okay. And at that point too, I was kind of getting like snobby. So like, okay, I'm not going to do like Jason Goes to Hell. Like now, if I was there, I'd be doing Jason Goes to Hell and explaining why that is a masterpiece. Sure. So sure. I had to, so I had to do something a little bit more highbrow. So I figured, oh, The Shining would be perfect. And right around this time, I came, I I discovered Room Two Thirty Seven. I think it just showed up on video on demand within like a couple of weeks of this all happening. And when I watched that, I never knew how just zany and bonkers The Shining was on a sub subliminal level. Mm-hmm. So I did my presentation and it's actually, I actually recorded it or I did like a, a PowerPoint and it's on YouTube still. If you, people can go find it. I, unlike the uh, Tumblr articles, Rob wasn't forced to go read this one. 
or I'm sorry, watch this one. But no, I was really proud of it. It was real. It was really fun doing like a 15 minute long presentation about The Shining, about all the weird like eccentricities in it. And the thing that pissed me off was that young fan. He sat there like didn't he? He never prepared for anything, and so he did the Audrey Hepburn or is it Audrey or Catherine? Whatever, Sabrina. This with, with uh, oh, Humphrey okay, Bogart. Okay. He yep. did that. And how this cinema professor's class would work was he would talk about the movie because it was always a three hour long lecture once a week. Mm-hmm. It was the first like 15, 20 minutes of the class were the lecture. And then there's like a 10 minute bathroom break. Then the rest of the period was the movie. Oh, right. And then, and then like the week before, I'm like, oh, like, is there a chance that like one of us can show our movie? And he's like, well, you can't do yours because yours is like two and a half hours long. And I'm like, fine. I'm like, fine. If I, if I knew like I had an option of picking something I could actually show the entire movie for, yeah. I would have picked something different and something a lot weirder. I would, I would have done a racer head if I could have gotten away with it. <laughs> uh, remember, folks, that's always the holy grail. That would have been the perfect late night movie. It's like seven o'clock on a Wednesday, and you have like a captive audience of like a hundred plus people, and you like that is the ultimate goal of a cinemodity late night movie, right there. I trust so, you'll do the right thing, Henry, <laughs> and show a racer head. <laughs> Oh, folks, that would be a dream come true. That would have been an absolute dream come true. Holding like a lecture hall of 100 plus people hostage while Racerhead plays. Oh, that'd be great. Oh, God. That's, oh, my God. I'm going to, I am going to fantasize about that tonight. That's, that's Zach's version of a late night movie. He doesn't want one person in his clutches. He wants a lecture hall in his clutches. <laughs> <laughs> there were actually, now do you mention it? I don't, well, okay. Tangent tangential rant that actually is applicable to this because it is noted that in the history for the shining that stanley kubrick loved the racer head that he would screen this film for the cast and crew on the set to say this is the sort of ambience ambiance oh, i want for this movie nice. so we are allowed to talk about a racer head in the context of this movie so it's allowed this isn't just like a tangent about like nothing Woo. but but going back to cinema classes i remember the female professor, she taught like intro, like independent cinema and a couple other like the higher, higher ranked ones or whatever it was, the for upper classmen. And in the independent class, that was a, a class designed for freshmen. And one of the clips she showed was from a racer head. And I asked her and I said, why don't you show the whole thing? And she's like, I'll disturb the students. They will be disturbed. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm pretty sure my exact response to that was. Ah, it's Isn't like, no, <laughs> that is the point. You have people in your clutches. You have to make them watch a race. Like the entire <laughs> semester should be watching a racer head every week. Yes. That's the only proper way to teach film folks. <laughs> Just keep watching a racer head. It's kind of like Orson Welles with like stagecoach. Just watch a racer head over and over again. You'll learn something new every single time. Indeed. Um, but no, so like, so young fan got whoever it was. I found out like that afternoon that like, oh, young fan gets to show all of Sabrina to the class. And I'm like, nobody cares about Sabrina. And yeah. I was mad. Like I was livid. Like I, I walked out for like an hour and I'm like, I'm not going to sit there and watch this movie. Sabrina's not a very interesting movie. It's kind of bland. I get why, like when you're teaching film, why it's kind of important, but it, it doesn't serve any purpose. It feels like a waste of time. Like compared okay. to like what you could learn. there's more to be learned from the shining than there is from Sabrina. I'm like, sorry that. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen Sabrina, but of course I know of it. And I would agree with you that it, the shining has more of an impact and at least to, to our lives than 
I, at this day and age than Sabrina does. But I, I also want to. I also want to say Young Fan. That's his name, right? Young Fan. Yes. Fuck you. Fuck you, Young Fan. I don't even know you, but fuck <laughs> you. Zach's story made me hate you too. You know what the best part was? Because every like Monday, him and I were forced to go to the library and offer extra help for a film class. Uh, yeah. And once my room, well, my roommate of many years, Justin, showed up just to see you. Because I used to complain about this guy all the time. So he wanted to meet him. And while he was sitting there talking to him, he texts me while I'm talking to Young Fan and said, What a tard. <laughs> Nobody so likes this- you, Young Fan. Nobody likes you. No. Stop listening to this podcast. <laughs> Last thing I heard about Young Fan was that, because he was obviously Chinese, was that he like left the country and, tra- and whatever it was, he like left the country and something happened. And he started like mouthing off about like government officials and he couldn't get back into the US. <laughs> That's a thing that happened, apparently. I heard oh, wow, that's, okay. the, that's the last I ever heard about him. That was I've never heard anything about him ever since then. Um, yeah, young fan. Karma's a bitch. Yeah, he was, okay, he was obnoxious, and I hated him. So I've always been fascinated with The Shining. And even like when I gave this presentation, like my, my centerpiece was a lot of it was like pulled from Room 237. And I went through a bunch of things like the TV, like just being able to play without an electrical cord, the ball... The um the luggage outside the VW Beetle, sure. um all that sort of stuff. And the best part was, I think I, had, I think a lot of people liked it because, like, throughout the entire presentation, I played the soundtrack to The Shining, so it really put, especially like you know, again, Rob remembers the lecture halls in Albany, like mm-hmm. they were big, and so you had the whole music playing while I was talking. I think I did a really good job. Um, and so the best part was that, like after like my presentation ended, like during the bathroom breaks, a couple of kids came up to me like, "Oh, I love The Shining." And the best thing was in Rob being the educator here, not me. So one kid came up to me after my presentation and said, yo, have you seen that documentary room 237?" <laughs> and I kind of like, if anybody knows their internet memes, there's the internet meme of the black guy with his head like cocked to the side with the oh, question marks the question above marks. his head. Yeah. Yeah. Like and that's, ex- <laughs> that's exactly what I did. So I'm like, did, did you not, did you like, you have, obviously have you seen room 237? <laughs> well, it was like, the, the, clearly you you heard what i just said for the last 20 minutes because you wouldn't be coming up here if you didn't but at the same time though the entire thesis of my talk was about the room 237 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like i'm like what i'm like it's like I, I appreciate your enthusiasm but next time just try to pay attention yeah oh well, yeah you hit you hit a one of my teaching mottos right on the head there zach <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was like I appreciate you coming up and talking to me. I think that's cool. Yeah. But yeah, usually try to for pay me, attention. yeah, for me, it usually comes across as I'm glad you're asking a question, but I've already answered it. <laughs> Type of thing, you know. It's like when someone's like, "Oh, I didn't get oh, this yeah. thing," and it's like, "Yeah, okay, I only repeated that four or five times, but I'm glad you care enough to ask again." <laughs> yeah, it was one of those where it's like, again, yeah, it, it was. It's just one of those small amusing moments. So, like when Rob talked. Talks about his educator experience. I'm like, okay, I was there for one semester. I know what it feels like. So that's kind of my context for The Shining. Was that never? I, I picked. I've always known about Room 237. Um, a couple. I think it was last year. I finally picked up the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray has all sorts of like bonus features and stuff that like I think it would drive Rob even further insane. Okay. But um, yeah, that that's kind of I, that's that's kind of the lens we'll be looking at her because there is a lot of stuff going into the shining. I think for the first time in preparation for this episode, I finally have a slight grasp on what I think the shining is as a movie, Mm -hmm. um, which I've never been able to say prior to this, but yeah, the shining is one of those movies that it's a movie 
like okay context time for the shining movie not robin zach context time was that going into the shining stanley kubrick had just directed barry linden yes and if you've never seen barry linden it's a it's an incredibly well-made film but it is the driest thing on the face of this earth. Okay, yeah, I've never, I've never seen it. I just know about it from what I've read and the little bit they talk about in Room Two Thirty Seven. Yeah, Barry Lyndon's great. I have it. I've only watched it once. Okay. Um, it's, one, it's one of those movies I probably should watch again because it is. It's, it's. Oh God, it's perfect. It's made. It's immaculately crafted, but it's just so dry. Mm-hmm. And the thing was, like that movie didn't make a lot of money at the box office, and Kubrick felt much like. Like this was kind of a very specific time also in Kubrick's like history where it was taking him a while to get movies made. And it wasn't because he couldn't do it. It's just because like he was so prone to like everything had to be perfect. Yeah. Every detail had to be just exactly how, how he imagined it. And if it wasn't, everything just came to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. And so that's why like, okay, you look at like, oh God, 2001 comes out, what, 1968, 1971's A Clockwork Orange, 1976 is Barry Lyndon, and then it's like 1980 is The Shining, 87 is Full Metal Jacket, then we don't get um, Eyes Wide Shut until 99. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was, was that uh, Kubrick felt that he was kind of being outdone by other filmmakers at the time and really wanted to show like, okay, I, I am better than all of you. I want to blow, and that's what a lot of the people who knew him at the time, that was his motto going into The Shining was, I want to beat everybody at their own game, because by the time he was making The Shining, you did have things like your 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 carries, you had your Halloweens, and this is before like your Nightmare on Elm Streets and Friday the 13th, and even though I don't think Kubrick would have been too concerned with the slasher genre, but you did have more of your horror was going through a revival at this time. Yeah. And he wanted to make a film that would kind of just blow everybody out of the water. And that's what he set about doing. And I think this is one of the things I was thinking about going into this was because I think in okay, context a little bit more was that Stephen King hates this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, it's no secret that like, King goes out of his way to just complain and bitch about this movie <laughs> every single chance he gets. Like, Stephen King, you have all the money in the world, all the, the acclaim any human being can ever wish to have. And yet, if you mention Stanley Kubrick to Stephen King, he will just go off on a rant. <laughs> and, and I find that fascinating because clearly there must have been a point in this because The Shining, the book came out, I think, in 1977, right? Yeah, I think I think it was late seventies. Yep. Yeah, seventy seven, and then you sit there, you look at like because again, Carrie came out. The movie was in nineteen seventy six, and I think when did Carrie get written seventy four. Yeah, early seventies. I think that was the previous, if not the directly previous book, definitely earlier that decade. Yeah. Okay. Um, because and I, that's the weird thing is that like Stephen King in the 70s because the movie the shining movie didn't come out until 1980 so they probably started filming probably in 78 or so mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so stephen king even though he was like becoming a popular writer he wasn't stephen king of today where oh, you yeah. say his name and he's a household just figure and it's like I can imagine very easily Stephen King goes into this being like, oh, Carrie was a great success. Can't wait for my other film. And Stanley Kubrick essentially tells him to shut up and sit in the corner. Yeah, yep, yep. And I'm starting to think that's why Stephen King hates this movie. I, I don't doubt that he probably doesn't like the final product. I don't, I, I, I don't doubt that for a second. But I think most of his 
frustration and hostility stems from probably Kubrick telling him, I don't care what you think. Oh, okay. Okay. I could see that. Stephen King is so successful Yet, as of like a year ago, he was still bitching about this. And I would imagine that when (laughs) Dr. Sleep comes out in a couple of weeks, he will be on some talk show, whether it be Kimmel, Colbert, one of them, and someone will ask him about Stanley Kubrick, and he will roll his eyes. Okay, okay. Yeah, I I can see that. It'll be like Stephen King, the man's been dead for 20 years. Let it go. He made this film almost 40 years ago. It's like, (laughs) let it go. And that's the thing that I find fascinating too, because I've for full disclosure, folks, I've never read the book. Um, I do want to read it one day. I know there are some, di- I know there's a lot of differences between the book and the novel, but it seems like everything Kubrick did. Cause I've never, I've never been able to figure out why Kubrick picked this as his next project following Barry Lyndon. Mm, yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. Because Kubrick very rarely like started with an original idea. He always liked to adapt other people's things, even if he basically took them and just com- fundamentally altered them. Mm-hmm. Like again, Doctor Strange Love was based on a book. Past Glory was based on a book. Clockwork Orange was clearly based on a book. Yep. And it's like, but why something? I I would imagine Kubrick's thinking was okay. Stephen King is an up and coming talent. If I take something he's done, it's gonna give me a certain level of just. No, no, I don't want to say notoriety because that's not fair or not the correct term, but it's, it'll give me kind of just like a little bit of a boost. Yeah, it gives, that, it gives him that foundation. Yep. Yeah. But the thing, though, is that in some of because I've, I've been researching The Shining for, for years now, as I've stated, and even in preparation for this, I went back to a lot of the research I'd collected back in like 2013, and I found two conflicting pieces of information that like, oh, Kubrick optioned the film rights for the shining but then i also heard that warner brothers had the film rights and gave them the kubrick mm. and, and i don't mean gave in the sense that like money i mean like oh warner brothers was the one who ones who optioned it and gave the project to kubrick to direct oh okay because, because there's this thing that even like back in the day when i was in um in uh college that when i would study again the filmmakers and just the in new american cinema and all these different like cinema movements that were happening in like the 60s 70s i remember because again you had like your oh god french new wave cinema you had your uh a new american cinema of like the late 60s early 70s where like easy rider completely just like dist- like hollywood was broken at that time but easy rider was kind of like the rebirth of the phoenix and i'd all and that's when the directors got more power the studios System was was dissolving, and that's when all the corporations were coming in, buying all of them. And in the meantime, when that was happening, was that the all these corporations, whether it be what was it, uh, golf, and you had like the soda companies, they didn't know what people wanted. They were buying these movie studios for wholesale prices, yep. and they didn't know what people wanted. And so they would go to these young filmmakers like your Scorsese's, your Coppola's, your uh, uh, De Palma's and say, do whatever you want. You you know what the you just came out of film school. You know what the kids like these days. Here's <laughs> yeah. a, here's some money. Go figure it out for yourself. And that's where you got things like The Exorcist, The Godfather, um, Jaws. It was just the whole idea. You know, Jaws was more the studio system was coming back at that time. But you did have the idea of like, okay, we're going to entrust a director who has a vision along with the producers, and they're going to hopefully make us a lot of money. Yeah. Yep. But the weird thing about Kubrick that I've never been able to figure out was Kubrick was always, for the most part, 
a studio guy. He was never, except for his very early films, kind of like your kill, um, the killing, and not even Passive Glory, because Passive Glory was Kirk Douglas. Was Kubrick always was an establishment person, but the weird thing was that he somehow survived the studio system of the fifties, then the dissolving of the studio system in the sixties. And then the reforging of it in the 70s and 80s. Mm, oh, that's an interesting idea. And then while all that was going on, he really, nobody ever bothered him. Okay. Mm. Because if, because in Kubrick's history, was because he did the killing with Sterling Hayden, and that was more or less an independent picture in the sense of, like, I don't think any studio really had their, didn't sure. give him any money. Or if he, he did have a studio, but it wasn't anything, it wasn't a big picture. And then after that, he does Passive Glory, and that was the Kirk Douglas thing. And Kirk Douglas had all the all the resources in the world because he was he was matinee idol Kirk Douglas. Yeah. And then I'm trying to think what came after Passive Glory. Was it Spartacus? I th- whatever it was, Spartacus I, came I think next. So. And what happened was Kirk Douglas originally had another director for Spartacus, and him and Kirk Douglas didn't get along well, so he hired. Kubrick because he knew Kubrick was a competent filmmaker and most people okay okay Lolita's in there somewhere too I forget where Lolita figures into all this um but no but during Spartacus though that's when Kubrick and Kirk Douglas really started to like butt heads whereas I think there's a quote I think in one of Kirk Douglas's autobiographies he says the phrase he's the most talented little shit I've ever seen (laughs) and and so that was when Kubrick really I think like there's there's a documentary out there I'm not sure if Rob's ever seen it called the life in pictures and it's it's about two and a half hours long but it goes through all of Kubrick's projects and unfortunately they're all like kind of like bite size so Mm. you get some you get some insights but nothing really gets the time it deserves type of thing yeah which is fair again you probably could do a six hour long documentary on Spartacus never mind 2001 and the clockwork orange and Yada, 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 going down the entire line. And that's when kind of like Kubrick was getting frustrated with the Hollywood system because he didn't like people telling him what to do. Like like most artists, he didn't want to be told what, what was off limits and what was. And so then I think after that was Lolita. And the big thing was that like with the production, that was back before the MPAA, you had the production code. And Lolita, again, everybody who knows the story of the book of Lolita, it really was this controversial number of this old man kind of screwing around with this underage girl. And when you say underage girl, you're not talking about 16. You're talking about like a 10-year-old girl. Yeah, Lolita's concept uh, gets canceled today. (laughs) Oh, Lolita as a concept was canceled back in the 60s, more or less. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah, she she wasn't jailbait. She was a child. That's, That's... that's Lolita, folks. That's why I have all Kubrick's films. Lolita's always my least favorite. Because I just I just think it's just an icky premise. Mm-hmm. Um, that everybody in the movie has the hots for like, even though I think what's it, Sue Lyons? I think that was that was Lolita. Um, even though she's like supposed to be like fourteen or sixteen in that, it's still it's just an icky premise having a bunch of grown men just ogling a teenager. Um, but anyway, though, so that was another one too where Kubrick really like the, the production code came down on him and he really couldn't move. And that's when I really think he started to get close to. Um, the studio system with 2001. Okay. And that's when really everybody's kind of left Kubrick alone. And that kind of ties into the fact that like the whole thing with the, 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 the moon landing footage and all that it was like at the same time that Kubrick got left alone was on his most experimental film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, yeah. look at, you look at Kubrick's filmography and 2001 is clearly the most avant-garde of all those. And yet it's the one that was the most successful and he was left the most alone with. Mm. And it's it, it just, well, he was left after 2001. Everybody left him alone. Nobody really questioned him because he was, at that point, he was Stanley Kubrick. 
Kubrick was always he was in the system, but he never was forced to play by the system's rules. Yes. Yeah, and th- I think that's that's kind of the the tan uh, not tangential, but the minor knowledge I have of him as a director in the industry is that he got to do what he wanted to do. Yeah, which was also very like that was, and even though that was not unheard of by the time you got to the late sixties, early seventies, it was very very rare before that, and it was even rarer come the eighties. Yep, absolutely. And nineties, like everybody looks. It's funny, like everybody complains about like Stanley Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, is like, oh, it's such a disappointing last film of his. And it's like, folks, he made like a three hour long movie about like like oh god, what would you call it, Rob? Oh god, the um. Oh god, what would you call Eyes Wide Shut the people? What, what what's the word for this? Well, there, okay, there's a lot of things that can be said about Eyes Wide Shut. But what oh god, the um oh god, I, I want to say deep state, but that's not the right word. That's more Yeah, I know context. I know what you mean. I feel like it's right on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of the exact phrase what, for it. like like Freemasons almost. What would you call that um yeah, Al- like Illuminati. The, uh, Illuminati. Yeah, oh. the people pulling the strings in the background. Yep. The puppet master. Yes. Think about it. It's funny that we have all these conspiracy theories about Kubrick and the moon landing, but we had his final films about like the sex orgies of the Illuminati. And like six days after the final cut is shown, he dies of a heart attack in his sleep. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> talks about that. I don't want to be throwing around conspiracy theories, but come on. Come this on! Last, this is the last episode of Cinemodity. Zach and I are going to uh, have committed suicide uh, with bullets to the back of each other's heads. <laughs> but it's true, though. Like, come on! Oh, yeah. Six days after he shows the final cut of Eyes Wide Shut, he dies all of a sudden of a heart attack in his sleep. Because that definitely can't be faked. <laughs> like, come on, folks. Oh, think. Yeah, let's okay. think for a second. Let's put our thinking caps on. Um, but no, but like, so like you have all that going on with the shining, like Kubrick was like in every single sense of the word, a maverick. Um, yep. he did what he wanted. Nobody, he had no oversight, even the slightest. And so when you look at the shining and you look at all the weird kind of just like insane stuff that happens in that movie, you can't help but think there has to be some sort of deeper meaning to all this because there's so many and yes the room 237 people are eccentric i think that's the nicest way of putting it Mm -hmm. but i do think they highlight a lot of things that happen in that movie on a cinematic filmmaking level that wouldn't that would happen by accident if any other filmmaker were making that film but not if it's stanley kubrick and that that's where i agree with what they're saying at least in the concept of it because, you know, that's what we know about Stanley Kubrick. He is a perfectionist, was a perfectionist. Nothing was ever done by accident. And it, it gives that grounding to why it's interesting and worthwhile to talk about this film in such an abstract way. Yeah, because there's certain scenes in this, like, I, I, I think I mentioned it, like the ball, the TV set. But the one that's always been one of the more fascinating ones for me in recent years is it's, it's rather early in the film that Jack is sitting at the typewriter and oh, Shelley yeah. Duvall comes up to him and the chair disappears for one shot. Yep, that and ever since I saw Room 237, I can, I can never miss it now. The shot where when um, Ullman... Are, is showing the family around the hedge maze and they're walking back towards the hotel and it looks like a car is about to drive directly into them and then it cuts and yep. the car is not there anymore. And and that I think whenever we get to 
the- our, our theories of The Shining, stuff like that plays a role because while I never noticed it in my initial viewings or you know many viewings of The Shining until I saw Room 237, they they still I you know me being the weird conspiracy theorist that I am can take those and and rationalize them into my narrative of the film. So that's yeah. that's where I find it interesting where it's like no I I hate when. People are like, this chair's gone. Man, we sure fucked up the Native Americans. It's like, no, no, no. Those are not related, okay? That's where I detach from that movie a little bit more. The the Native American, the genocide, the Holocaust stuff. But I, I love just them pointing that stuff out, for sure. Yeah, because <clears throat> some of the behind-the-scenes stuff I was watching, and probably the most, the, the clearest example of Kubrick, because that's the weird thing, because you look, if it was any other filmmaker, the chair thing would be a continuity error. But the thing that kind of, like, and it's hard to explain to people, and I didn't even include this in my presentation in college because I, I couldn't figure out how to explain it to people in under a minute, is when we go in to, to what, Ullman's office, and we have the impossible window. Oh, yeah. The impossible window is one of those things where it's like you look at it, and it's clear. It, 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 as much as, again, these people in the Room 237 film are... I don't want to call them kooky, but they're, I want to call it more stream of consciousness because I don't yes. think, I don't think they're insane. I think they put a lot of thought into it. And I don't think they're out on the street corner with a, a cardboard sign that says the end is nigh. Oh yeah. I think that's something that we should, I think we're both in agreement there where, you know, these are smart people putting time and effort into a critical analysis of this movie, regardless of what I or Zach thinks about how ridiculous some of their theories are. It, it's meaningful. It's worthwhile. It's someone's concept of this movie. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think the most, again, there's a lot of examples of this, like I already mentioned, but this, the Stuart Ullman, and for those of you who just haven't watched The Shining recently, rather early in the film, I think, guys, like in the first 15 minutes of the film, Jack Nicholson walks into the manager of the Overlook Hotel's office, Mr. Ullman, mm-hmm. and we see a hallway shot, and he goes into Mr. Ullman's office, and there's this big window behind his desk. Yep. And the window shouldn't be there. Because if you, and it's never shown in the film, and it's even, it's slightly hinted at in one of the behind-the-scenes featurettes from Kubrick's daughter. We Actually, in the behind-the-scenes footage, she follows Jack Nicholson from his room, I guess wherever he was sleeping at night, onto location of the set and we walk down the hallway and instead of making the left hand turn where the window should be we make a right hand turn but you see for a brief like god like maybe like 30 frames you can see that it's more hallway yep yep. there's it's confirmed there's no window behind that set and so okay clearly kubrick when he designed this wanted there to be an impossible window yeah. He wanted that for some reason. A, Kubrick never did. That's another thing, too. Kubrick was, I don't want to say he was a recluse, but he definitely appreciated his privacy. And mm-hmm. ever since A Clockwork Orange, he very rarely ever gave interviews to press. Oh, oh interesting. Okay. So he, so that's the sad thing is that like we will never have a concrete answer to this. Yeah. I mean, part of me is like, oh, that's a bummer because I love having some resolution to things. But at the same time, you know, that. There, there's like I, I say it with uh, with a lot of stuff I'm into. Sometimes letting your imagination run is better than having the exact answer. And this is one of those cases with The Shining and with Kubrick where I'm on the fence. I don't know what would be better because <laughs> sure I would love to have a definitive answer, but 
if we don't have the definitive answer and we just have speculation and conspiracy, this is the one thing where I'm kind of like, okay, everybody, you got to realize you're grasping at straws at a certain point. And I think that's where my kind of belief or my willingness to think about these conspiracies break down, because even with Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, you know, the, I, I will work that book to death, and I still do, but there's some things I read about it and hear people say, and I'm like, no, like you're grasping at straws even for this. That's kind of crazy. And that's where that balance lies. And yes, there's so much going on in The Shining that we're never going to get an answer to, but there's just as much and more going on in these people's brains since this movie has come out. And that's, like I've been saying, I think some of my issue, we can't take what they're saying as any way truth or, or objective. It's all subjective based on their experiences and opinions. Yes, but how I'm looking at the Room 237 people is that I'm taking them more as like, a, like okay, look at the movie The Shining as like a text. And they are just highlighting specific passages. I'm not really oh, agreeing sure. with their analysis of it, but I'm agreeing with what they've pointed out. Yes, I, I think that I'm I'm right there with you. Absolutely. Yep. Because there's one point too, I know like very early in the document oh you say documentary, whatever it's in the film and in I'm oh, sorry, because you can't say film because I can mean either one. In room in the room. In the room. <clears throat> in the moon room. In the moon room. <laughs> there's a point where I think it's the one woman who's part of all this. She says, Oh, the Minotaur poster. The Minotaur poster. And I always kind of figured, oh, the Minotaur in the labyrinth. I've always kind of thought that's kind of like a, a kooky notion. But she has a point. Earlier in the film, Ullman says, we don't, we don't do any skiing here. Mm-hmm. Then why would there be a skiing poster in the game room if there's never any winter skiing here? Okay, sure. It's like, don't get me wrong. It's, it's the notion, not that like she's right and like, okay, Stephen King, I'm not, Stanley Kubrick wanted like minotaur imagery in this i'm not saying she's right in that sense though yeah but i do think a lot of what kubrick did in this was that because again i've read somewhere that he had like a 200 iq and he would he apparently was a master tactician but the joke was anytime he had a new movie production he would hustle people with his chess skills okay and i'm thinking that Kubrick might have been so bored by filmmaking. I think about it. Kubrick, most people would agree, his best film is 2001. Mm-hmm. Not just in the sense of within his canon, but I think it's widely agreed upon upon just film scholars oh, across yeah. the globe that 2001 is the pinnacle of science fiction. Absolutely, yeah. You hear that all the time when you look when you see those lists and look up those articles. Absolutely, yeah. There's, there, you'll be hard pressed to ever make a science fiction good, a science fiction film half yeah. as good as two thousand one. Yeah, as I've said before on this podcast, of the people who think they can objectively rank media, that's up there. Two thousand one's up there. Ulysses by James Joyce is up there. People might not agree with them, but the the group of people that feel they can objectively rank <laughs> the best, those always come up, and that that's just a fact. Yeah, there's there's certain there's certain undeniable truths of existence, and I do think that and I think there's even argument to be made to that even beyond science fiction, 2001 is probably one of the very few films you can get to p- perfection in celluloid form. We'll we'll save that for the, uh, the the space movie series that's coming up maybe sometime in the future. Pardon the pun. <laughs> um, but no, so like it's the idea that like if you're Stanley Kubrick, and let's just assume for the sake of argument, you have a 200 IQ, you've you've essentially made your opus at this point, and you're making a sh- I don't want to say schlocky, but compared to 2001, compared to Barry Lyndon, mm. you are making schlock. 
Yep. What do you do when you're making schlock? You got to keep yourself entertained. So what you do is you throw in a bunch of just impossible imagery to sit there. I don't want to say confuse the audience, but kind of the old adage, you might not have known, you might not have noticed it, but your brain did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they even say one of the people interviewed said that there's research and there's evidence that Kubrick was into subliminal. Yep, the subliminal messaging. How did advertisers use those tricks? And he tried to use the same tricks in the movie, is what they say. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm thinking is that Kubrick might have been I don't want to say bored, but he wanted to kind of like exercise his intellect, and he threw a bunch of things in here just to see, like, okay, how can I disorient the audience without them even knowing? Mm, and yep, I think that, yep. and I think there's a lot of that here. Whether it be again the TV with no electrical cord, the luggage, the the Playgirl magazine, the there there's so much in this movie. Like we talked about the, them walking across the road and the cars there. There's also all the establishing shots of the Overlook where there's no maze, there's no hedge maze in any of the establishing shots. Yep, absolutely. And I, and I find that sort of stuff being like okay. Like we've established, nothing Kubrick did was by accident. He never made mistakes. He would, and like we've said numerous times too. I'm sorry, we haven't said okay, we haven't said it this far. Was that Kubrick was known for doing multiple takes? Like mm-hmm. there would be dozens upon dozens of takes of everything. So if there is a hundreds scene, in some cases, right? That's that's the rumors that there were sure, hundreds. Sure, that's always been the extreme. That like there's there's certain takes of certain scenes, and I think in Eyes Wide Shut, the scene between Tom Cruise. And like Sidney Pollock is the most shot sequence in any film in like history, okay? Because because he shot it, he did like two hundred takes with the original, um, with um Harvey Harvey Keitel. And then yep. when he then when he reshot the entire movie with Sidney Pollock, he had to do another two hundred takes. So I think that scene, I think I, I forget where I, where it is. I read that though, but apparently there's like four hundred takes of that one sequence. Love it. <laughs> That's what um, I would do if I was a director. I would just be like, you know, pushing people to the limit type of thing. Well, that's what he did, though. And that's yeah, why they yeah. say, I know in some of the um, the behind-the-scenes stuff, they say that's where, like, you get the shot where after uh, Wendy drags Jack into the food, the, the what do you want to call it? The uh, storage pantry the, or whatever. Yeah, the, the food pantry, and she locks him in there. And we get the POV shot of the camera under Jack with his head down being like, Wendy, honey, I'm hurting real bad. Apparently, I think he hit my head. <laughs> apparently, like that was like like a 40 or 50th take. Let me out of here and I'll forget the whole goddamn thing. It'll be just like nothing ever happened. <laughs> Wendy. Baby, I think you hurt my head real bad. I'm dizzy. I need a doctor. Honey, don't leave me. I'm gonna go. Oh yeah, I think they mentioned briefly in 237 where it's like he do so many takes, use all these weird camera angles, and see which one fit. 
you know, yeah. kind of thing. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yep. Even, even when we see Jack, like, the second time we see him walking down the corridors, he's about to go into the gold room. When he's, like, kind of, like, not the first time, but the second time where he's really kind of, like, having, like, that hissy fit where he's sitting there doing his thing. Apparently, mm-hmm. there were so many takes of him just, he walks down the thing normally. He walks down the, nor- the thing slightly agitated. A little agitated. Then they did the exact same thing. He walks down, hugging the right side of it, normal. Okay. Slightly agitated. Slightly more agitated. To the point where there was like 40 or 50 takes of him just walking down a hallway. Just each time, slightly more agitated. And then different just ways of him on one side of the corridor. In the middle. Slightly to the left. Slightly mm-hmm. to the right. All the way to the right. And that's what Kubrick did was that. And then guess what? You frustrated your actors so much. You jet, you got a visceral performance out of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I mean, I feel like these stories come up and people hear about them and like, oh, wow, that's so excessive. That's crazy. Isn't uh, this might just be, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and everything we've talked about and everything I've been exposed to. Isn't that just good filmmaking? You want to get different angles and shots and types of coverage so that when you're done shooting and you have to edit, you aren't missing anything. Like, I feel like that's all we talk about today is reshoots, 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 reshoots. And I'm like, if you just did your job the first time, of course, there's other behind the scenes things that go on that I'm not talking about in this this point. But if you just had your coverage first the, done well the first time, you wouldn't have to do reshoots that much. You wouldn't have to worry about it. I, if I was a director, I would want every conceivable, every shot from every conceivable angle, so I had the best thing to work with on the editing room cutting board. Yes, but the thing though is that when you're in studio filmmaking or just any any filmmaking period, the bureaucracy gotta, weighs down. Well, I well, I, well, yes, but I think it even more broader than that. I think it's the idea you have to be on time and on budget because people do have schedules. You just can't keep doing that. You just can't. I think, but you have your actors. They've got, they have other commitments. You have all these things. You don't have the luxury to just keep doing it over and over and over again. I, I, thought, was, I thought actors were like trained animals. <laughs> like, don't, well, like, don't you just put, like, if you need two actors to kiss, you just put peanut butter on each other's mouths and they go for it type of thing? <laughs> I thought that, that's what we were dealing with that. There's a reason for the phrase, as dumb as an actor. <laughs> it's my personal dream that someday we could train actors to be useful to society, to help people perform simple tasks, maybe even to assist the elderly or the blind. (laughs) No, I know know exactly what you're saying, and I know there's so much else that goes on in the movie business that I'm not privy to, and even stuff I'm, I'm sure that either of us are not privy to, but that when I hear these things, we're like, oh, isn't that crazy, isn't that excessive? And it's like, no, that's him doing a good job. But, but I, I, think, I get what you're saying. There's a lot more but going only, on. But only someone like Stanley Kubrick or someone of his stature and w- with respect within Hollywood, which is very – like even today, like I, I can only imagine like a Steven Spielberg would be the equivalent today that could take mm-hmm. as long as he would need. Okay, and even okay. – th- I think he would see it as a detriment that he had to do it that many times because that's just not his – yeah, at the same Style time, of filmmaking. yeah, that is, you you know, you have to have that in the film industry, you have to have that knowledge of the trade-off between how much time are you spending versus, you know, what marginal gains are you going to get in the final film type of thing. No, yeah, I get, I'm coming at it from more of a, everything I work on is, well, not everything, because this podcast is not an example, but most other projects I work on are by myself and myself only. I know with writing, like I've pissed people off, they work with me with writing, and I'm like, I got this one like scene I have an idea of, I'm going to write it like 
one day a week for five weeks, I'm going to sit down and write this scene just five different ways. And they're like, what the hell's the point of that? And I'm like, because I'm going to be in a different mindset every time I write it, and that's going to change the motif of it. And they're like, man, just fucking write it once and get on with it. And I'm like, no, that's not the point. So there is that trade-off type of thing, and I I get it. But I guess where I'm coming from is that attention to detail. I I, I said before, it's, it's good filmmaking. I think I should say more or a more appropriate version of it is I respect that about Kubrick and other filmmakers that are willing to take that time and drive that deep into such tiny details. Oh yeah, and I think that's what it was too. Because there's again, he wants to get that visceral performance that you can't get. Like again, I think I forget on one of the documentaries or something like, oh, uh, how do you tell someone to be crazy? Okay, take one. It's like okay, how how do you do that in one take? Be crazy, and that's why like when you do get the the axe going through the door and here's Johnny, that's like the thirtieth take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going to some of the more, again, the Room 237 film elements of this. Because I know at one point in the movie they talk about showing the film backwards and forwards at the same time. Yes, which I thought was the like most interesting part of this. Because that was something, everything else I feel, all the conspiracy theories you can go online, you can read about. This was something from Room 237, the playing it forward and backwards over each other with the overlays. I had never heard of that being done before. And I was actually like, whoa, this is a neat idea. It's a really neat idea, and they have some great supporting evidence they show in the film, but I got two problems with it. One, the very beginning of the that segment where they show them doing that, mm-hmm. they have the FBI warning on the DVD included when they start both films. Or, I'm sorry, one of the films. Oh, which is what, not the part, which part is not of the part, actual, yeah. No. And they're beginning the, the reverse of the film while this is happening. There's a shot of, like, Oh God, Jack with the with the picture frame, yep, yeah, and you yeah. see the FBI warning. I'm like, okay, you've screwed up your time already. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's like all those people, you know, everybody hears the urban legend of if you play um, uh, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd and watch uh, Wizard of Oz, it'll match up. But if you dive into it any modicum further, you find that nobody knows when to start them at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, oh, everything's just fucked then because it's all different. Yeah, it's all a matter of just you see what you want to see. It's kind of like, you know what, if you, you you go into the woods looking for Bigfoot, chances are whatever you see and hear is Bigfoot. Exactly. But my second complaint with that is, is that, and I'm not sure how much Rob looked into this, was that Kubrick cut a lot out of this movie during editing. That was something I did. I, I knew we were going to get to it. That was something that I was looking at, you know, when I – um. Because I've had this film in my collection for a while. It's been on my hard drive, my first hard drive with the most movies on it for years. Just because, you know, I got it from other people. But I was interested in, like, looking into, well, what's available today? Like, of course, you can still find it through, you know, sketchy websites. People will always share this movie. But just like the Terminator series, something that caught my attention was when I searched this, there were a few instances that said The Shining Director's Cut. There were a few other instances that said The Shining European Cut. And I did a little digging, and I think that's what you're getting at, Zach. There's there's edits that were done to this movie that I don't think people have really tracked down and solidified throughout history. Like, there, I couldn't find good information on really, like, when I had my copy of the movie, I was like, well, is it the directors? Is it the European? Are the directors and European the same thing? Is it the American? And I really had no idea. And at a certain point, I was just like, well, screw it. I just want to watch this movie because I love this movie. And I gave up, kind of. Yes. Okay. There are only two cuts of The Shining. Well, 
There's two official cuts of The Shining. There's a third, which we'll get into in a moment. There's the North American, re- there's the overall release, which is the mm. one that's most widely available. There's the European release, which I think is, has about 30 minutes cut out of it. And there's certain things like the, uh, the doctor at the beginning with Wendy and, and Danny, that's, that's cut out. But oh. the th- and this is one of my favorite like, film stories of all times. And I think Rob knows my fascination with lost media is that apparently I don't, the story changes depending on who you talk to. Cause there's really no, there's official word, but there's an unofficial word is that the first day or two when the shining debuted, remember folks, this is back in 1980 when it wasn't like today where everything goes out in 6,000 theaters all at once. That didn't happen mm-hmm. then yeah. was that the shining premiered in Los Angeles and in New York. And it had a sequence between when we see Jack frozen and when we see these, the, tracking shot onto the onto the picture frame of jack in the picture july something ball 1920 what 1921 yeah 1921 july 4th yes between those two shots there is a sequence that does that did exist of where we see mr olman the overlook manager goes in it's funny the shooting script and uh oh god what's the word they use for um continuity pictures were taken of Mr. Ullman walks up, to, is, in, is in a hospital, and he walks into like to a lobby. He asks the nurse, like, oh, I brought some flowers, Mrs. Torrance, may I see her? He goes in, him and Wendy have a talk about kind of like what happened, kind of like, kind of like very ambiguous re- resolution. And while this is happening, Danny's outside with the nurse. And when they, they, they uh, Mr. Ullman and Wendy talk, and Mr. Ullman says, oh, I ha- you have a place you're going to stay after this. And she goes, no. He goes, well, I have this really gorgeous place on the beach. I won't take no for an answer. You and Danny can stay with me for a few months until you get on your feet. And as he's leaving, he says, he asks the nurse, oh, do you have a vase for these flowers? And she goes, oh, sure, I'll go get one. And as the nurse walks away, uh, Mr. Ullman looks at Danny and says something. I forget. It's online. You can find it. Okay. He says something like, take care of yourself, kid. And he throws him Jack's tennis ball and he walks away. And then we cut. And then we cut back to the overlook as we pan through. We do the tracking shot of the music, and we see Jack in, in the the picture of July fourth, nineteen twenty one. Okay. And and plus, there's also apparently footage too is that there was a scrapbook sequence because if you remember back to the Mister Grady bathroom thing, Jack says to Mister Grady like, "Oh, I saw your picture in this book," mm-hmm. and that sequence is in the movie. Kubrick, oh. because uh, babe, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead. I'll get okay. I'll get back to that in a moment. Okay. The mi- what happened with the Mr. Ullman, I don't want to say epilogue, because it wasn't an epilogue, it was before the end of the film, was that apparently that was in theaters for a day, maybe two tops. And something happened where Kubrick watched the film with a crowd and didn't like that scene. And so what he did was he contacted, I think it was Warner Brothers, because I think this is, this is a Warner Brothers film. Yep. And he said, I want this scene out. And Warner Brothers had extreme loyalty to Kubrick. They always did. They, they, they kept Kubrick as close as they could. And they actually hired two editors, one in New York, one in California, and chauffeured them around the cities in limousines and they oh, went God. into each theater and Kubrick had it down to which frame from frame a to frame B of, <laughs> um, of this shot of this sequence and had them cut it out. And the person who was in charge of doing this in New York is named again. It's, it's easily accessible. You can find it online folks, but the one in Los Angeles has never been identified. 
Okay. And apparently, <clears throat> the person, the, the New York editor who was assigned to this, has been asked numerous times what happened to the footage. And what he says was he put it in a briefcase, handed it to the Warner Brothers executives, and he never saw it again. Mm, okay. And so, the, so the million dollar question is. Did this footage survive? Yeah. Did Kubrick have it destroyed? And even if Kubrick had it destroyed in about the dozen or so prints that were floating around that time, did he keep it in his own records? Because mm. think about it. He only had those sequences excised from the prints in theaters. He didn't uh, – who knows? Maybe he had them destroyed in his own archives. Yeah, the we'll actual – yeah, the masters or whatever they're called for filmmaking, yep. So we'll, so we'll never know. And I know a few years ago when it came to 2001, there was always rumors for 2001 Space Odyssey that there was about 20 minutes of that film that was edited out and was considered lost. Um, it was found to be in a salt, salt mine somewhere yeah. that it was always in Warner Brothers' hands. And Warner Brothers has said like it was always – Apparently, this is the again the official story. Who knows how true it is that in Kubrick's final will and testament, it was my films are never to be touched. Oh, okay. Warner Brothers has said we have the excised footage from two thousand one, but we're never releasing it. Gotcha. So it's preserved, but no one unless you are in the archives. Yeah, which are which is which isn't exactly. Uh, a, a conference room somewhere in Hollywood. It's pro <laughs> it's probably a salt mine somewhere in in the Midwest. Yep. You ain't seeing that footage. And then the million dollar question is, where is this Mister Ullman hospital footage? Does mm -hmm. it exist? Mm -hmm. It's anyone's guess at this point. Yeah, and in interesting layers of mystery around it for sure. Yeah. So, do you have any insights about that, Rob? Or any guesses? Or I uh, I don't know. I mean. I've I've always kind of been one where I know that, you know, things get cut from movies, things get changed in movies. I've always been one to kind of, you know, just take the movie as is and, and go with that. And I think that's something I've done with The Shining. Uh, but I'm I'm not a I'm not against seeing footage that was edited out that was lost from a film. I, I don't know if it would change my opinions on the film. I wouldn't take it as, you know, like, oh, it ruined my childhood or oh, it just gives me a whole new opinion on it. It's more of like just a a kind of slight addendum, it seems. So I would love to have it, but I don't think it's necessary. It's necessary if you want answers from Kubrick, but as far as I'm concerned, The Shining is The Shining as we have it, and it's always going to go down as such. You know, if we ever got more information on it, that's great, but that's not going to overhaul, I think, what I or the majority think about it. I, okay, this is, this is my opinion on that, is that, if Kubrick and Kubrick being the master strategist that he, that he was, and you look at like all the like whatever it was, Kubrick, something bothered Kubrick about that sequence with Mister Olman at the end. Okay, so you don't go through that much effort unless it really bothers you. And think of how many times Kubrick must have watched that sequence up until that yeah. point that he was okay with it. And it wasn't until it got into the hands of mass audiences and not even like the masses, we're talking maybe like a few thousand people tops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cause the, because the, the, the thing has always been, it played at least one day. Okay. That's known for, it's either one or two days. That's always been the thing. It's either one or two, definitely one. And what was happening? What was what was an audience's reaction to that clip that bothered that bothered him so much that he felt it was detracting from mm -hmm. the overall film?
Yeah, that's a good question, because I'm thinking about it in terms of, well, how does that fit into what I think about this movie? But like I said, I don't want to fall into that trap, because this is just something that was cut out. But like you're saying, some people saw it. Some people saw this as the film. This scene was included. I I, I don't know. Stanley Kubrick doesn't be one it doesn't strike me as one to be like, oh, the audience didn't, you know, this, I don't know, I'm kind of torn, because at one point, you know, it's, I can't imagine that it was the audience didn't receive it well, so I'm taking it out. I would imagine it's more like the audience saw this in a light I did not want them to. Like, I'm thinking of, like, we talked about it before, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, where everybody knows that book as lampooning of the meatpacking industry, when that's not what it's about. There's like two pages about the meat industry. It's really about socialism. Maybe Kubrick felt the same way that including that scene, it was misguiding his viewers to the message he wanted them to have. That's the only thing I can I can get a sense of for someone, as we talked about, as clear cut with their intentions as Kubrick was. Yeah, I, I, I've always because I do think because, again, going back to the thing I was about to say and I cut myself off was that there apparently is a scrapbook with with mr grady and i wonder i I just wonder if there's supposed to be there's there's a part of this because that's always been a big question about this i think you brought it up earlier on was that how much of this is just jack torrance's descent into insanity Mm. and how much of is it the spookiness of the hotel or the supernatural of the hotel yeah and i and i know in one in one of the behind the scenes documentaries on the shining blu-ray the screenwriter that Kubrick had with the film, let me see what her name is right now, um, Diane Johnson, she talks about the sequence where Jack is in the food pantry and he gets un- he gets the door unlatched. Mm-hmm. And I know in room 237 they say it could only be Danny or Wendy who let him out. Yeah, that, what they say, it's either Danny or Wendy or you have to say, you have to accept that something supernatural is going on. Yes, but in... The behind the scenes stuff, Diane Johnson says Kubrick and I had to, and I forget the specific word she used. It was very, t- it was a very specific term. She goes, we had to concede that something supernatural had to allow the plot to go forward. Oh, she, she, oh, she did. Great. She did, I, I like that. Cause it makes so much, uh, the thing I'm going to relate that scene to when we dive into it. That is exactly what like the parody of that scene that I'm going to brings up does, where it's like we just consent that the plot needs to move forward. That's interesting. But that's the thing, though. Is, like, if Kubrick was this man with a 200 IQ that was playing like forget 3D chess, he was playing four dimensional chess with the sure. audience. He wouldn't do that. Like that's yeah. the thing, though. If Kubrick was ta- was playing with this film. And doing things like, again, the TV, the ball rolling down the hallway, all these things. And plus, we haven't even addressed the fact that there's so much like mirror imagery in this. There's always there's, there's a very sharp duality present in yep. The Shining. There's all these mirror things happening. And I just wonder, though, is that like, what what was he trying to get at with this? And not that like, this it, is it, not like one of those times where it's kind of like when people ask David Lynch, what's a racer head about? I'm not saying I want that sort of just like, like, Oh God, what was his name? Darren Aronofsky with mother where he like within like 15 minutes of the film being out, he's like, it's global warming. She's mother earth. We're hurting the planet. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I don't want to be spoon fed this. I don't want the plane. Into, here comes the food. I don't want that. But I just wonder, though, is that like, what was Kubrick's? Again, he's making a horror movie, but outside of the last like fifteen minutes of the film, there's really nothing 
blatantly supernatural about this film. Well, I think I think this is where we're getting more into the discussion of what I think this film is, because I do think that everything that happens to this family is, I'm doing air quotes, supernatural to some extent. I don't view this movie as just Jack Torrance slipping into madness. I view it as something a little grander. And I do think, I don't think it's like a ghost opened the the, the pantry door. I, I, I have a very different opinion about the, the, the setting of this film um, that ties back to literature. I just don't know if we want to get into that yet type of thing. To answer your point, I think the whole movie is supernatural. I, I think that everything is supernatural about this. Supernatural in the sense of there's forces at work that aren't just our characters. Well, I've always, and maybe this is the part where we start talking about what we think about the movie and like what it's about, because I've always, and it's not until really preparing for this discussion that I've, I've thought about those. You think about like Jack. It's like, why does Jack die at the end of the movie? Okay, let me rephrase that. Why does Jack freeze to death? Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm not. It's not just a rhetorical question. It's oh. an actual question. And it's that, why does he die? It's that, like, yes, he gets trapped in the hedge maze and he freezes to death. But, what, again, if he's being powered by supernatural forces... I think we might have to get into this because I don't think he dies at the end. I don't think death or life is a construct in this movie. I think I'm going to just say it. My opinion of this movie is that the Overlook Hotel, very much akin to a novel that came out maybe I think about you know eight, seven or eight years prior to Stephen King's The Shining, uh, I think about Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut and Cat's Cradle, I believe, revolves around a place that is unstuck in time. That's what I think of this movie as. I think as soon as the family, as soon as Jack gets to the hotel at the beginning, him and his whole family are no longer experiencing time linearly. They are just this amalgamation of all events that have happened and will always happen and have yet to happen. And so when he dies, when somebody opens the door to the, the pantry, when Wendy sees the, the guest with the, the slash in his head at the end who says, great party, isn't it? I don't think, I don't think time... Life and death don't matter anymore. The concept of life and death only exists with time. You can't be dead unless you were once alive. But if everything happens simultaneously, which I believe everything's flashing in and out in this film, none of that, it, none of that matters. It doesn't matter that he's, he doesn't die to me at the end of the movie. He just reaches the end of one kind of pathway that his character led him on. Like, I think at the beginning of the film, when Ullman says, you know, oh, there was this guy in the 30s, and he went crazy and killed his family. That I think that is Jack Torrance. I think he did kill those twins. I think he is Grady. But nobody knows any understanding of that, this unstuck in time concept. It's all just moving around them. And we're perceiving it through the lens of a time, linear time being. And like, there's other things that we can get into with my theory of this, like the chair disappearing that we mentioned. That's a great touch of just in one scene, the chair's there. The next scene, it's not because maybe that chair wasn't there in 1980. Maybe that chair was actually there in 1927. But time doesn't matter. It's all coming and going, flashing in and out in this one location. So I, I know that's something they don't touch upon at all in room 237. That's uh, just what I've come to think of the movie as. But that I feel it's necessary to say because I, I don't think about it as anybody dying or living I think of everything happening at the same time. We just get it forced through the the piping bag of our own perception. Yes, I I agree with that for the most part. 
in the sense of like how I how <clears throat> just in preparation for this, I finally I think kind of come to the conclusion, like you said, there's two different realities happening. At the, I think there's probably multiple multiple realities happening at the same time with the Overlook Hotel. Well, I said I said Cat's Cradle is Slaughterhouse Five. My, I have to correct myself for we get any oh, okay. angry angry emails. <laughs> well, well, I was going to say something though, but I didn't want to embarrass some folks. Um, <laughs> Uh, but no, but like I, I agree with you in the sense that like the Overlook Hotel is some sort of, and this is never even like hinted at in the film, but it's more kind of our own like analysis. It's like a vortex in time. Yes, it, it's like it's like a crossroads of all this weird stuff happening, and there's and that's why again Wendy does see all these just kind of like bizarre events happening all at once. But the thing though is, and I, this is hinted at in Room Two Thirty Seven, is Danny can shine. And Jack can probably shine because I think it's Scatman Crothers that says it came, it's it's a it's passed down from family member to family member. Through yeah, because he's talking about he's like him, me and my grandma. We could always have conversations without ever moving our mouths and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, and I think that clearly there's multiple things going on here in the sense that both Danny and Jack are able to experience it. But the part that makes that kind of throws it out the window is then how is Wendy in the middle of all this? Cause, cause the Wendy stuff, even though it feels very, and I think they even say it in the film, it's very Saturday morning cartoon. Mm-hmm. But how is she able to see any of this? If, well, if it's, I, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, but I've, I've taken it as more of the people who have the shining or can shine. It's like they can, they can feel that or, or see or interact in some way the fact that this place, the Overlook Hotel, is unstuck in time. But people who don't have The Shining, even though they can't feel it and interact with it the way that Danny does, they still have to experience it. Well, that's the thing, though. And this kind of goes back to the Mr. Ullman thing from the excise clip. Because, like you said, it's like, oh, Jack doesn't die Jack, and I think the film makes a very big point of that. It's like, oh, Jack didn't die because he never, because he's always existed. It's kind of like, how do you kill something that's always in motion? It's just, mm-hmm. it can't cease if it never existed. And, but the thing though is, if you go back to the shooting script of this alternate scene, you have, I'm going to read, I have it now in front of me. When, when Mr. Ullman's talking to Wendy, he goes, Danny's looking real well. It seems to, he seems to have adjusted very well, all things considered. Oh, I spoke to Lieutenant Elliot on the way over here, and he said they finished with this silly business about their investigation. He said he'd be over here this evening to tell you himself. Wendy, does this mean we're free to leave? Ullman, of course you are. Oh, about the things you saw at the hotel. He told me they've really gone over the place with a fine-tooth comb and didn't find the slightest evidence of anything at all out of the ordinary. Mrs. Torrance, I think I know how you must feel about this, but it's perfectly understandable for someone to imagine such things when they've been through something like you have. You mustn't think about it anymore. Have you decided where you're going when you leave here? And that's the thing about the the beach house. Oh, okay. And the thing about it, let me find the rest of it about the end with Danny. Um... All right, so okay, Mr. Ullman's about to walk out. He walks out of Wendy's room. He goes out to like the nurse's office with Danny, like next to the nurse. He goes, "Oh, okay, Ullman, I'm on my way. I brought Mrs. Torrance some flowers. Could you have some someone put these in a vase, nurse? Yes, I will. Ullman, goodbye, Danny. See you tomorrow, Danny. Bye. Ullman moves away, then turns. Ullman, oh, Danny, I forgot to give you this catch." He throws the he throws the yellow ball to Danny. Ullman, see you tomorrow, Danny. Ullman leaves. Hold on, Danny. And that's the thing, though, is that it seems like Ullman 
And I don't want to say that Oldman's like the ultimate bad guy here, mm-hmm. but like you take his scene in the beginning of the film where he's in his little office with the impossible window yep. and he makes the comment being like, Oh, uh, my my whatever he says my superiors in blah or whatever is didn't tell you about what happened what really happened out here with miss with the caretaker last time from like 10 years ago mm-hmm. who murdered everybody and it may i wonder if kubrick felt that by cutting the omen scene it makes him out to be the bad guy or because i do i get a feeling too with the ending with jack is that it feels like jack the reason why jack ceases in the maze because think about it if in that deleted scene, he says the police didn't find anything. They didn't yeah. find a a Jack Torrance uh, frozen body in the middle of the hedge maze. But we very clearly see we don't just see Jack Torrance collapse yep. from exposure. We see the we see the following morning of his frozen body, mm-hmm. and that in a way I would feel that scene does more detriment to the film than the Mister Ullman does at the end. Yeah, because by- the, the Mr. Ullman thing, I'm kind of going back and forth because this is really the first time I think I've I've heard it to a great extent as you've described it, where, you know, it kind of, with my theory at least, it, that would make it seem like, you know, oh, we didn't find anything. And it's like, Danny, you can shine. I know you know something went on, but nothing really happened. Like, he's the one who's kind of aware of the the properties of this hotel, and he's trying to make sure that the people that encountered it and got away from it, Danny and Shelley Duvall, don't you know think anything more of it type of thing yeah oh and apparently there was also there was a uh uh text card that said we go past the picture frame on the wall and it cuts to a te- uh fade into this okay fade into this title onto black quote the overlook would survive this tragedy as it had so many others it is still open each year from may 20th to september 20th it is closed for the winter Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, and that got cut out too, and that was after Ooh. the picture. Okay, and and that's why I wonder because remember, there's also and they don't cover it this much in room. They highlight it a little bit in room two thirty seven, but they don't really delve into it any sort of depth. But there's also the character of Bill Watson, who's the who's the active day, ca- uh, uh, oh god, keeper of the hotel during oh, the sure. on season. Yeah, and it's like, what role does he have? Because even you have him there, and while Ullman is explaining this entire story to Jack very early in the film, Bill Watson just kind of sitting there, and mm-hmm. he and, and he doesn't look. He looks very perturbed, or almost like it's as if Ullman's I don't want to say spilling the beans, or just like, oh, I don't know. There, there's something about this. I feel like Ullman is a bigger picture to this story than maybe Kubrick ever wanted him to be. Okay. Or in the way, because again, my theory about Jack in the um the the hedge maze is that the hotel is what gives all these. And again, I'm just saying supernatural in the sense to to differentiate it from people like Wendy. I think it's the idea it gives all these entities that can shine almost like an enhanced power. And the moment they leave, mm. he leaves the hotel. That's he's out of the vortex now. Oh, oh, interesting. I like that. Yeah. I don't know how true it is. I'm just kind of like thinking out loud. Sure. But I get that feeling that there's more There's more to it. Like the hotel is the vortex. And once you leave the vortex, because it doesn't seem like Jack has ever been aware of this sort of thing 
prior to when he comes to the Overlook. Because we do get to some of the lines of dialogue with him and Danny, where he's like, I, and I think also with Wendy, like, I could just feel like I could live here forever. I feel right at home. Yeah. It's the idea that, like, Jack is empowered in this very specific location, and once he leaves its premises, mm-hmm. that's it. Oh, interesting. Okay. He's cut off. There's there's no tether. And that's yeah. why once he leaves the he leaves the uh he leaves the bounds of it all, he's out. I like that because that fits also with, of course, you know, a, a big part of the, the actual movie, The Shining, I would say, is that scene when he's talking to Grady in the bathroom and Grady's like, Did you know your son's trying to bring outside people here? And Jack Torrance is like, No, that's a bad thing. I need to stop it where he's really kind of getting this feeling of this place and almost getting addicted to it. It needs to be his and his only. Yeah. Oh, right on. I think there's a lot more, again, like, yes, you have your, your superficial, like spooky house movie or spooky hotel movie, but there's also things too. Like there's, there's the, the really like fun story that the reason I think what in the original novel, the, the, the room is room two thirty what? Two seventeen. Two seventeen, Yeah. And the, and the reason's always been for years that the reason why they had to change it was because the the owner of the Stanley Hotel said, "Oh, if you use this real number, no one will ever no one will ever want to stay in that room." Mm-hmm. And then it came out that the Stanley Hotel doesn't have a room two seventeen. I mean, like years after the fact, that was my problem with that part in the documentary where someone's like, "I called the hotel and they said they don't have that room number," and I was like, "Did you call them in 1979 or 78? Because that's when it would matter." <laughs> Well, room numbers get changed a lot in a lot of cases. It's crazy. So I would not I would like not be surprised if they had one and it's lost. Like I I hold that with very little credibility. Well, okay, but think of it that way, though. You're the Stanley Hotel. Stephen King writes a God, a a bestseller that's based on your hotel. Why wouldn't you keep that number? Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like that. That's publicity. Absolutely. That's what I mean. I think that's one of those things where like, we, we have to take them at face value. Like any sort of film like this, you have to at least give them the benefit of the doubt they're not blatantly lying to you. Mm-hmm. Sure. But that's the thing is I want because we haven't even talked about the very specific room 237 in this discussion so far. Oh, yeah. Because even that, because it's not until that room comes into the story is when like all hell starts to break loose. Yes. When that door gets opened by uh, the, the moon room key. <laughs> yes. The moon room key. And that's the question too, is that who opens room two thirty seven? which I would imagine is the Pandora's box of the overlook hotel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why I wonder is like, okay, who, and that's when everybody's so concerned about who lets Jack add the food pantry where the real question is, who got the key to room 237 and unlocked it? Because yeah. Danny's surprised by it. Jack is only notified by it until when Wendy tells him. Yep. And why would Wendy unlock it if she if, if she's again, why would she act so surprised that Danny got in there if she's the one who unlocked it? Yeah, exactly. And that that's I think just where my the unstuck in time theory comes into play because it's like it doesn't matter. In in this story to me, nobody physically went and opened that door. It just matters that it was open at one point. So our characters have the chance to see it at that point. And that, I think, goes along with the same thing where, you know, Jack Nicholson goes into the room, sees this very young woman who he starts to dance with. I have to mention the music during that scene.
literally made me think of Under the Skin. I was like, I was like, I've heard this before. Like someone with a naked woman. And I was like, oh man, this is under the skin. So I'll have to do a clip comparison to that. But he's holding her. And then in an instant, she becomes this decaying body. And that to me is what unstuck in time means. You, you don't get to see it when it happens. It just happens. One moment a chair's there, one moment it's gone. One moment there's a woman, one moment it's a corpse that's decaying. And I, I, that's part of the thing where it's like, there doesn't, there is no answer to who opened it. It's just the fact that someone opened it at one point. But I agree with you at the same time, that doesn't really, that part of my theory doesn't delve or describe the concept, which I also agree with you, that room 237 is a Pandora's box in some sense. Yeah. Cause that's when like, cause I do wonder too also how much of this that Cooper cut out. Because yeah. we, because we have a moment where we see like Wendy is like talking to Jack. Because while all this is going on, we have Jack screaming at. Okay, again, I I don't know my specific scene order, but we have Danny with his big wheel. He drives past room two thirty seven, sees the door unlocked and opened. He turns around and looks at it, and this the next thing we see is Jack at his desk, like slumped over, and he's screaming in his sleep. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I think the next thing we get is uh, Shelley Duvall actually doing work in oh, the yeah. hotel, and she hears Jack's screams while he's yes. having the nightmare, and goes to run with them. And that's when we get that great, the shot of, you know, she's like helping him out. And then Danny comes into scene and it's, you know, the camera's set up behind the typewriter, Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Danny comes in and she's like, Danny, go back to your room. And it cuts to behind Danny, seeing them in the distance. And he just stands there and she eventually goes up to him and she sees the bruises on his neck. And that's where we get that whole thing going. Because she's at first like, you did this to him, you bastard. How could you do this? But then realizes, oh, Danny told me a woman choked him type of thing. But that's the thing that's interesting, though, is that we go from, like, because when Jack's screaming and Wendy goes to comfort him, she, he's like, I had a horrible nightmare that I killed you and Danny. Yeah, and he has like, the, the nightmare he says he does to his family what Grady did to the twins that he heard earlier in the movie. Yep. Yes. And then we see, like you already mentioned, we see Danny come out. Wendy goes over and says, you did this to him. And it's like, well, what would lead her to believe that he hurt Danny? Because prior to this, the only other mention we have of Jack being violent to Danny is the one time he got drunk. Mm -hmm. But Wendy is very forgiving when she talks about that. Yeah, I've I've always kind of been a little unsure of, is that true forgiving or is that I'm trying to put a good family face on for this medical professional? Where she might still have those bad feelings, be like, "My, my, uh, my husband might hurt our son. But when she's talking to this doctor who actually could, you know, influence her family dynamic where she's kind of like, oh, it's nothing. It just happens. You know, it's okay. You know, he walked into a door. No. Um, let's see. I guess Danny started talking to Tony about the time we put him in nursery school. Did he adjust well to school? Mm, No. (laughs) He didn't like it too much at first. 
And then he had an injury, so we kept him out for a while. And yeah, I, I guess that's about the time when I first noticed that he was talking to Tony. What sort of injury did he have? Uh, he dislocated his shoulder. How did he manage to do that? Well, it was just one of those things, you know, purely an accident. Uh, my husband had... Uh, been drinking and he came home about three hours late so he wasn't exactly in the greatest mood that night and well Danny had scattered some of his school papers all over the room and my husband grabbed his arm you know to pull him away from him it's, it's just the sort of thing you do a hundred times with a child you know in the park or in the streets but on this particular occasion my husband just used too much strength and he injured Danny's arm. Anyway, something good did come out of it all because he said, Wendy, I'm never going to touch another drop. And if I do, you can leave me. And he didn't. And he hasn't had any alcohol in uh, five months. <laughs> that type of thing. I've always been a little uncertain of that family dynamic with them. He got hit with a baseball. Got <laughs> <laughs> he closed uh, his eyes when I whipped a fastball at his face. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, but I mean this more like in a scene syntax sort of way. You have the moment where that all this is happening. She blames Jack, and then he goes off storming into the gold room as he starts like kind of like talking to the imaginary bartender. And then Lloyd shows up and, mm -hmm. and pours him the drink. And then Wall, this is he's having his conversation about law uh, to Lloyd about how he hurt Danny that one time, but it was an accident. Yeah. And he does seem to be rather remorseful in that sequence. And then the very is that scene kind of like unfolds. Wendy runs in and says, Jack, uh, there's a woman, there's a crazy woman in room 237. She hurt Danny. Yeah. He told me. And he yeah, turns around. Switches motif from being angry at him to just being like, you need to help us now. Type she's frantic. Yeah, she's frantic. And he turns around and goes, are you out of your effing mind? Yeah. And, and it's like, and so he goes in there and at that point, again, the film goes to a point of view shot. As we see, we walk into mm -hmm. room 237. It, we do not see Jack until he starts to embrace the woman. I also don't, we don't even see like his hand on the doorway. It's all just camera and things moving, right? It's very disembodied. Yes. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. That's that's what I'm thinking because I, again, I, yes, I do subscribe to the theory that, and I think in the most understandable way to put this is that we, this is kind of like in I don't want to say an alternate reality, but it's it's parallel dimensions. It's all these things happening at once. Mm -hmm. Some some maybe prioritized more than others in the sense of how they're occurring in time. But we see him walk in, and we do have the thing with the woman though. But the thing I find fascinating, though, is that, yes, we have the beautiful woman, and clearly that's meant to be a jab that, like, uh, nothing against Shelley Duvall, but Shelley Duvall is a very peculiar, odd-looking woman. I think that's fair to say, right? That's not mean, right? I, I'm so glad this is coming up. I, I was trying to work this in near the start of our conversation, but it just, it just didn't fit because we did so much Room 237. It doesn't come up a lot on this podcast but there's a few women I absolutely love. I think the only two times it's uh, come up on this podcast is Naomi Watts and fucking Rhonda Boussalot's eyes from that episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I 
love Shelley Duvall. <laughs> was it from Unsolved Mysteries or Real Scary Stories that you liked the woman with the pretty eyes? That was Unsolved Mysteries, definitely. Oh, okay. I know, I know, yeah, I know in the Real Scary Stories episode, there was a woman a woman with eyes that you really liked. I think it was a voice in Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, in, in, oh. um, sorry, in Real Scary Stories, it was the eyes. I'm pretty sure Rhonda Boussalot was Unsolved Mysteries. I have oh. to go. I have to go dig up those twelve pages of notes I have on Unsolved Mysteries. Hey kids, Rhonda Boussalot was certainly from Unsolved Mysteries, but it was her beautiful, beautiful voice that I loved. While in Real Scary Stories from the segment called Condi's Ghost, it was Sarah's eyes that I also loved. But I agree with you completely when you say Shelley Duvall is a peculiar person to look at. I I I just love everything about her. I've loved her in other things as well. I'm not just ex- like explicit to The Shining. I think she's great. Uh, that whole first scene that we were discussing, where she's you know telling the doctor it's a thing that just happens to all families. You know, he had school papers and Danny knocked him down. He grabbed him. It's just a little too hard. It's not that bad. But in that scene, she also smokes a cigarette. And that, oh, I that forgot knows that. that. Oh God, she's smoking cigarettes the whole movie. Oh, I love Shelley Duvall in this movie. And the way she talks as well is also great. And I think the point you're getting at with Shelley Duvall, sure, the woman in, in Room 237 is supposed to be much more uh, glamorous to some extent than she is because she's dressed in the frumpiest fucking clothing the entire yeah. movie. But, like, I think Shelley Duvall's character plays an important point, especially in the scene where Jack is freaking out at her and she has the baseball bat. When she first gets on the stairs before they start backing up and before when she's, like, just first swinging it at her, at Jack Nicholson, she basically says something, uh, Jack Nicholson's going, have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever spent one instance thinking about my responsibilities? You don't get anything I'm doing. And she goes, I'm so confused. <laughs> and I think that's... Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Why? I just want to go back to my room. Why? <laughs> I'm very confused. I just need a chance to think things over. You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few minutes more gonna do you now? Stay with me. Please. That's her point in this movie. She can't shine. She isn't experiencing these things the way that they do. But she is just this kind of, she is the regular man in this movie, you know, to use that common phrase. She's the straight man. She's the one who doesn't know what's going on. And, and I, I just love her in every sense, every way, shape, and form. I could watch that scene, that close-up on her face describing Jack Nicholson uh, dislocating Danny's shoulder. I could watch that on repeat. God, she's, she's beautiful, man. <laughs> I, th- I think Rob watched Lamb Chop a little too much as when he was a kid, and he was like, or no, it wasn't Lamb Chop. No, 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 no. Wasn't it? Oh, God. What was the thing she did on PBS when we were kids? Are you talking it wasn't about Wishbone? Like, she was on an episode of Wishbone, I remember. No, no. Like, back in the really early 90s, oh. uh, Shelley Duvall did a thing on, I, I'm not I'm saying PBS, that's how I remember it from. Shelley Duvall used to read, like, the children's stories on PBS. I forget. There was a name for it. It wasn't Lamb Chop. Um... I know. No. I think I know what you're talking about. It's a thing. It exists. I'm not just making it yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I'm going back to room 237 and Rob's weird sort of like kink for Shelley Duvall. Love uh, of Shelley. Duvall. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> um, no, I think part of that, 
things that clearly the woman in the tub is meant to be the most, I think you put it well, the glamorous, more kind of like what a, a gorgeous woman, every sense of the word. And she's nude and she's getting out of a bathtub. She's dripping wet. But the thing that I think is fascinating is that she, is it her deteriorating into the old hag or is it just because like those, those sequences, like it's clearly a decomposing corpse. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. But why are we see like, cuz again we have like we see Jack like he's embracing her he's kissing the woman and then we see in the like we see like a close up of like behind her neck and we see the skin getting like really kind of just like yucky and deteriorating mm-hmm. and then we get like the uh, the the mirror shot and get another mirror and we see like he sees that she's like disintegrating and then we see like then we like see her like like it goes back to that like first person pov as she goes ha 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 like she's like mummy walking at him but then we keep cutting back to like the corpse like under the water of the bathtub then coming out of the water of the bathtub and then Mm -hmm. like the corpse like walking toward him we never see the old hag walking toward him and jack in the same frame we never see that oh okay okay and i just want again i'm just i'm not saying i'm not trying to point like or like uh Say I have some big point for all this. I'm just pointing out things that seem irregular to me. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sure. Yeah. And I just feel like even though like the people like it's funny. I think the crazy people in the room 237 film. I agree with them in kind of the symptom that like the room 237 sequence is something to note, like to kind of note and pay attention to. I just kind of disagree with the diagnosis of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a good way to put it. That's how I see it. Cause I do think there's a lot of weird stuff because even after that whole thing happens, Wendy finds Jack and she's like, so what happened? And he's like, nothing, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's so weird that like, Oh, Jack is experiencing this thing. And yet he doesn't have any, he doesn't really, I don't want to say confide, but he has no need to bring it up to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. It's interesting. Absolutely. I guess I've always kind of thought of that as, that's where his descent into madness kind of comes from. Um, you know, it's the, the age-old saying of crazy people don't think they're going crazy. And, you know, there's no reason for them to talk about it, you know, if they think that something's starting to slip. Because I think that's where everywhere earlier in the movie, prior to Jack Nicholson going into Room 237, he's just pissed off at his family. It's just the whole thing of kind of like, you know, what, what the hell's going on? Like, let me do my work. He's, he's losing his grip on reality. And then I think the Room 237 thing is, you know, because he, he's freaked out by that old corpse, that old hag that you know, laughs at him. And that might be the first time where he, he's realizing, well, something's not right in my head. I don't need to tell that to anybody because that's that's almost human nature. You know, it's like, you know, it's like you spend five minutes talking to someone who's not there. You're not going to go, oh, man, guess what I did yesterday to anybody. You know, people are going to be like, you should get checked out after that type of thing. It makes you wonder about like Jack and his whole like his ability to shine because he has the conference because I would say what Lloyd is the first quote unquote supernatural thing that happens in the entire film. Definitely. Yep. And yet Jack isn't surprised by any of that. So it's I think it's is it fair to assume that he's encountered this before where he that he's talked to people from this other dimension or it's just he's been doing this for so long that he just can't tell the difference. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. But he, I, I I think of it as that unstuck in time. Like that's when he's starting to realize he's done this all before. Maybe not in him and his memories, but it's starting to come forward where it's like you know, 
He's like, you're the best bartender. Glad to see you again, that type of thing. And then with Grady later on, he's like, you've always been the caretaker. It's like that slow realization that maybe, you know, he's experienced all of this. And even at the start, when what Shelley Duvall brings him breakfast in bed and he's like, oh, man, I, like every corner we would turn. It's, it's like I've been here before and I knew where we were going. And it's like that. I've always taken that as that slight inkling that he's starting to realize what's going on on a grander scale and starts to be influenced it influenced by it in a negative way where you know Grady's like you got to stop your son from bringing people from the outside you, you know you got to you got to fix these problems because we live in this little bubble that just moves against the rules of the rest of the world and we got to keep it that way and he's the one who wants to kind of keep it that way where Danny who can also shine is the one who's kind of like dad will you ever hurt us you wouldn't do that right we're going to make it out of here type of thing so uh, kind of like two sides of the same coin, one supporting, one negating almost. Yes, but then it comes down to like the whole thing with Scatman Crothers is that if he can shine and the hotel doesn't like outsiders coming in, then why is Scatman Crothers been there for so many years? Why? Mm-hmm. I, that, yeah, the, that, that, that hit me on this viewing that the whole fact that he's in Miami for a bit and has to take a plane to get back to them. That, that definitely, you know, in this viewing through a, uh, through a, well, I, a wrench in the works. Well, I get, I get this. Well, that's the thing too, is that you do need that superficial element. And I don't mean, I, when I say superficial, I'm not using that in a, in a negative connotation. I'm just saying you need the idea of like, Oh, the cavalry's coming. Scatman Crothers, Dick Holleran. He's, he's going to save Danny and Wendy. Like I get that. You need that for the normies in the audience mm-hmm. or you need that for the commercial aspects of the film. But it's the idea that like oh When you dig deeper into this film If the whole thing with the hotel is The hotel is aware Of like what's going to happen Why isn't it try, like, Why is it allowing Dick Holleran At any time then And that, uh, also, gotcha. that also makes you wonder how much of this Is Ullman And Bill Watson Yeah that's what I was about to bring up You know, there, I feel like there's so much of the, the actual workings of the hotel During the on season that we don't know about That would or, or might provide insight into these theories. Yeah, and that's why I want. Like, that's the thing that, like, this is where you wish you could sit down with somebody who was making this film and been like, okay, when like you talk to like I don't know the production designer. So when Kubrick had you put a window here, despite the fact that there shouldn't be a window here, like, did you ask him like, this doesn't make any sense, or did you just go with the mm-hmm. flow? Mm-hmm. Like, was mm-hmm. like that's where you'd love to talk to somebody who was on the set for that film. Be like, did Jack Nicholson ever bring up the fact that this window shouldn't have been here? Yeah, did anybody? Yeah, absolutely. that's why. I mean, and, when, those, and what would Kubrick have said? You know, would he would he have pulled a Michael Bay and just said "fuck you, keep filming," <laughs> or yeah. would he have tried to explain it to people? Who knows? Like, not that, like because again, I think everybody kept like Kubrick in high like regards. Like most sure. people wouldn't have questioned him, but someone like Jack Nicholson, who's like a superstar to end all superstars at this time, could have gotten away with asking it. And been like Stanley, uh, what's up with the window? Or like, like you know what? I, like you know what? I don't think the sun peers through the window at this time of the day. Like Jack Nicholson's someone who could have had, had the same level of clout, if not more, who could have gotten away with asking some of these questions, not for just like a- easy answers. I'm not saying I, again, nobody's looking for easy answers. Yeah. It's been like Stanley, what is this trying to convey to the audience? Like, what do you want the audience to take away from this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, like, you have all these, like, people being interviewed. Like, again, they found the film editor who went around, like, on a Saturday afternoon and edited all the prints to take out the Oldman, like, hospital scene. Yeah. Yet nobody found a production designer and said, hey, 
did, did anybody on set ever have a conversation about this? Not even if it wasn't even too Kubrick. Did anybody just kind of like sit down during like lunch and been like, what are we what? doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did anybody ever ask these questions? Like that must've come again. I get it's a movie set. Things are constantly happening. People don't really sit on their butt and like ask philosophical questions. They're more concerned about like getting the shot and like exactly. getting their jobs, like a day's worth of work done. Even in editing. Did the editor come in just like, that's why I mean, nobody's like contacting the people that matter. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That would be a good source of information. Absolutely. Even if, you know, I think Michael Bay is one extreme of, you know, the, the fuck you thing is by the famous story from what Armageddon where Ben, Ben Affleck was like, why are we sending drillers into space? Shouldn't we just train astronauts to drill? And Michael Bay was like, fuck you film the damn scene. But the other side of the spectrum, which I would imagine Kubrick was more like is, you know, I, I haven't seen, I've seen maybe a minute or two ever of Kubrick behind the scenes stuff. But I'm thinking of like David Lynch, the behind the scenes features for Twin Peaks season three. I've watched those and there's a some there's some instances where Kyle MacLachlan or um, what's uh, Richard Horn, Jerry Horn, whatever that actor's name is, the guy from the Warriors. He would ask David Lynch, like, you know, what what's my motivation? What am I doing in this scene? And David Lynch would speak for like seven minutes straight. And it's like me as the audience member watching it and the actor you can see are both like, oh, Okay, did you answer my question? And I feel like that's what might have Kubrick might have given, where if someone was like, you know, what's the deal with this window, Stanley? And he goes on some, you know, five minute explanation that to him answers the question, but to no one else, it does not. So, so I don't know. But what I'm saying is, even if that was the case, it would be great to hear from these people that got those answers and can relay them to us, because maybe there is some nugget of knowledge in there that people can, you know, latch onto and expand from. But, okay, two things. Da by the time David Lynch was making Twin Peaks The Return, everybody who's ever heard the name David Lynch know how, like, surreal he is. And just... Sure, so they were expecting of that working they, environment. You, yeah, if, like, if you were to ask David Lynch today about anything going on, like, I would expect that as an answer. And You're going to be like, okay, that is, that is words, but I need to think about what to make of them type of thing. And I think David Lynch knows, too, that, like, if he does one of those responses, most people will go away. I think he knows that if he throws some like token philosophy at somebody, they'll go away and be like, okay, then. Okay. But there's a thing in the Stanley Kubrick, a life in pictures documentary where he talks, uh, Stanley Kubrick was a big like animal lover. He had tons of cats. He had some dogs. And I, I forget, I think it was one of his daughters that said during the film shoot of Barry Lyndon, where he was on like location and he wasn't like at his estate with all of his animals. He left like 35 pages of notes on how to take care of like the animals. Okay. And what I, I, if maybe I have time and I can find it, I'll insert the clip here. But his daughter is reading the instructions. He left like a page worth of instructions and she reads from it about two of the cats. Like I'm just making up their names now. Like one sure. of them's like Jerry, the other one's Freddie. And they were a father and son like cats. And he goes into instructions that if they're fighting, you have to sit there, leave, like throw a bucket of water on them. You can also leave a door open, but only if Freddie can, can, can get out. Because if Jerry gets out ahead of him, he'll never be able to get away. But if that doesn't work, it just keeps going on and on, like all these contingencies. Sure. For like if these two cats are these two specific cats out of like a dozen plus start fighting, what you should do. And it eventually concludes with if they if you can't do any of the following, just keep throwing buckets of water, jumping up and down, shaking boxes, throwing towels until eventually they stop.
Stanley would involve himself, I mean, to such an extent with, with the detail of, of, of stuff that one thought perhaps was a bit beneath him. You should have been doing major stuff and not worrying about how you had certain files in your office. I guess Stanley saw it all as a package deal. You either cared or you didn't care. When we went to Ireland on Barry Linden, he left this 15-page document, care instructions for how to look after the animals. And um, the 37th instruction is, if a fight should develop between Freddie and Leo, and that was a father and son tomcats that we had, the only way that you can do anything about it is to dump water on them, try to grab Freddie and run out of the room with him. Do not try and pick up Leo. Alternatively, if you open a door and just let Freddie get out, he can outrun Leo. But if he's trapped in a place where you can't separate them, just keep dumping water, shouting, screaming, jumping up and down and distracting him, waving shirts, towels, just try and get them apart and grab Freddy. I remember once he had a cat that was drinking excessively and I said, well, perhaps you can measure how much that cat's drinking, Stanley. And he said, uh, no, that's impossible. There are too many cats. And then he phoned back a couple of minutes later and he said, but I could count the number of laps and he then said, now, how much does each lap take up in terms of water? And I said, I don't think there's any information on that. He said, well, leave it with me. I'll try and find out. And he'd go off and he'd try and find out from somewhere and then he'd work it out and we'd have a figure. You know, he was compulsive in that sort of way. This is a man that's literally thought of everything. Yes. Yet somehow there's like these weird question marks that we, like, it's just not that like, not again, like you said, everything is, I, I think we've made it loud and clear that everything is done on purpose, but there are these things in here where it's like, like he's not a surrealist like David Lynch. He's not like Stanley Kubrick was never avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Like he made mm-hmm. you think, but it wasn't like twin peaks, the return season eight, where it's like, Oh good Lord. What it's like, I didn't know my drink sure. was spiked when I started watching this. <laughs> yeah. Everything Kubrick did was like rooted in logic. He didn't just have weird imagery for the sake of weird imagery. He doesn't have David Bowie as like a giant tea kettle because, oh, David Bowie died during the shooting of this. Like when you have a bear man performing a blowjob to a man in a suit, in Kubrick's mind, that had a purpose. Yep, absolutely. There's a reason. Think about it. That is one of the more, okay, one of the more low-key Iconic horror sequences of all time. Mm-hmm. Yet to this day, no one's figured out what that scene means. Yeah, I, that was when I watched because I watched um, Room Two Thirty Seven two days ago, The Shining yesterday. And after watching The Shining, I was kind of like, "Why did this scene not come up in Room Two Thirty Seven? Yeah, that's what I think it means. So it's like, and yes, Room Two Thirty. I don't think Room Two Thirty Seven is meant to be like a comprehensive documentary explaining everything in The Shining because that would be a never-ending film. But it's the idea that there are so many things in this film that are inexplicable coming from a man that rooted everything he did in logic and reason. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But that's what makes me wonder, like, okay, if everything Kubrick did was rooted in logic and reasoning, what was going on in, like, the Ullman Hospital sequence that conflicted with his reasoning? That's what I mean. Like, anytime somebody, like, a filmmaker that has that much that puts that much thought into anything they do <laughs> cut something especially in a way that like requires an insane amount of effort to rectify it must be something pretty significant yeah yeah you would definitely think so and i agree with you completely and that's why i'm starting to think that like okay there is more to this and not okay clearly there's more to this i think that's been 
made abundantly <laughs> clear. But it's just that I feel like there's some, like, much like The Shining, and there's multiple, like, layers of existence happening in yeah. the hotel. I feel like there's, like, a layer or two, or maybe even more of this film that nobody has even cracked yet. And I do think the key to it, or at least maybe just a slightly higher enlightenment of it all, mm. comes from what Cooper cut out of it. Yeah, yeah, could be. But yes, that's a uh, yeah. I guess I, I that's the fun thing about The Shining set, and I think going back to my presentation from college, how I concluded that in my presentation, I said Kubrick essentially made these films. I don't want to say like difficult to decipher, not because he wanted to be like a smart ass and prove that he was better than everybody else. I think he did it because he knew that the films would have staying power. Mm, okay. Like, he knew that, like, okay, I'm making The Shining in, like, 1978-79 for release in 1980. Yeah. Like, Kubrick must have seen something. Again, like, we knew Kubrick was, like, heavily influenced by Eraserhead. And someone like sure. Kubrick probably would have watched that and said, wow, this guy, this guy's on to something. And he sees things like that, and Lord knows what Kubrick was watching. Like that's where you really wish, like somebody like I know Stephen Kubrick. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Stephen Kubrick. Uh, Stephen Spielberg has like all these like personal antidotes that he had like when he talked to Stanley Kubrick over the years. Yeah, and I really wish like even though those antidotes are great, I wish like Spielberg would be like, oh, like what was Kubrick watching when you were talking to him? Did he ever mention like what was he was watching or what he was thinking about? Like kind of that like. I don't want to say superfluous information, but kind of the stuff that like you wouldn't think would be important, but would give us more insights into what he was doing at that specific point in his life. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great to know. Yeah. And that's why I wonder is that like maybe that was Kubrick's ultimate like sleight of hand when it came to his films. Like Full Metal Jacket comes out in like 1987. And by that time you have Apocalypse Now, Platoon. Mm. Um, again, there's, there's a bunch of others that I'm forgetting right off the top of my head. You have all these other like Vietnam War films that are considered much better than um full metal jacket yeah, except for maybe yeah. except for except for maybe the boot camp the boot camp thing really is the the like, that there'll never be a greater boot camp sequence filmed in cinematic history you're never gonna outdo boot camp and full metal jacket sure but but when you're talking about like the vietnam war sequences you do have things to outclass it like platoon and apocalypse now yeah but i wonder if kubrick's master stroke was he knew by making his films in a way that was hard to decipher they would let they would live longer oh that's a really interesting point yeah and I think the same has been said and can be said for a lot of the things that exist today that were created however many years ago. People latch on to them and they have staying power because they are intriguing to some extent. You know, The Shining is a great example. Like we said, Finnegan's Wake is a great example, which was 50 years before The Shining or uh, 40 years before The Shining. And that still stays around because nobody has any idea what to make of it. I think that's a, just the staying power of media, that when it hits people and causes this intrigue, they're going to latch onto it, maybe not as a whole, maybe some people fall away from it, but there's always going to be that little kind of sect, that niche corner of the, the media, the consumers of the media, that are always going to love it and keep pushing it forward. That's an interesting idea, you know, to have that foresight for Stanley Kubrick, I think that's that's the most amazing thing. To you know, be able to do something like that because, especially in the day and age we live in, people are like, you know, the Marvel movies. Once again, the movie doesn't matter; they just want you to see the movie when it comes out and then buy it again when it's on Blu-ray. That's it. They don't care if it has staying power. To have that foresight back in the '70s and '80s to be like, let me do something that will stay with humanity. 
that's grand. And I, I can only hope that that's really part, uh, what, part of what his thought process actually was. That's great. Yeah, I think, I think it was the idea of, like, lose the battle, win the war. It's the ah. idea that, like, you know what? And I don't think, I don't think, okay, that's not maybe the most apt comparison. But I do think it's the idea that, like, okay, my films might not register now. And I think that happens with, like, you look at any of Kubrick's films when they were released. Um, 2001 really, critically, was not uh, yeah. a plotted film. Pretty much every single one of his films was I don't want to say it got like you, they usually got mixed reviews when they came out every single yep. one of his films and it wasn't until years later that people would go back and go wow and that's kind of like like any good film like and everybody if any of you listen to the Star Wars podcast it's why I keep saying with like the last Jedi it's like we all hate the last Jedi now and guess what 20 years from now we ain't gonna hate the last Jedi we're all gonna look back and say oh this is exactly what we needed in this specific time. Mm. As, as much as we all hate Ruin Johnson, it's going to be this man understood the language of cinema, not just now, but in the future, and said, "Okay, people are going. This is the film that we need, but nobody's aware of it." Uh yeah, yeah, and that's all, something only the test of time will truly tell us. Yeah, and I think that's how you kind of it's staying power. It's like, just because your movie made all the money in the world, like that's the joke with Avatar. Avatar made all the money in the world, but really nobody cares about it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, but that's that's what thing's interesting though. Those sequels it, though, they're gonna break the break the universe. <laughs> if we ever at this point, I think there's a very real possibility we'll figure out the meaning of the shining before we get Avatar 2. If anybody lives long enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll be in room two thirty seven with Jack and the, the naked de- de- decaying hag, and we'll be like, there's still even in this dimension, there's no <laughs> Avatar 2. I was gonna say that after the nukes go off, the only thing surviving were gonna be the roaches and Jimmy C. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob, before we delve into our uh, cinematis and late night questions and snack, is there anything else you wanted to highlight about The Shining or Room 237? Because I want time to devote to the Dr. Sleep trailer. Ah, okay, okay, yeah. I do want to talk about the Dr. Sleep thing with you because uh, I think we both have some strong opinions. I mentioned it earlier on. I do want to give a shout-out. Something, as I said, I've been familiar with The Shining for a while now. Uh, the scene where the the door gets unlatched for Jack Torrance, the other supernatural aspect we were discussing, that scene has always stuck out to me because it's so strange and so, you know, it gives you that sense of inquisitiveness. You know, what just happened? How did that door get opened? And, of course, we've discussed my theories, our theories about it, but ah, there's, there's something in another piece of uh, media that I have to highlight, and Zach has not seen it, Ever since it came out, and I watched it, you know, the night it aired, it always made me think of The Shining. Are you ready for this, Zach? Go get a sandwich or something, because it's about Adventure Time. The first miniseries of Adventure Time was called Stakes. It was about Marceline the Vampire Queen, her whole history. Um, When she gets her vampire aspects removed by Princess Bubblegum, it unleashes the vampires that she, you know, uh, suck the souls from. And they're back in the world, and she has to stop them again. And there's one episode, I know we've referenced it on this podcast before, where they have to stop the moon. And the moon is a nocturnal vampire who has a very, very meek appearance, but a crazy voice, like a crazy deep, like, I am the light that follows you when you are in the darkness, that type of thing. Hey, we're leading you to a trap. We're going to suck out your healing power and dust you. And then I'm going to put your dust in a litter box. 
and get a tiger to drop a huge smelly tiger bomb in your sorry dust clubs! Stop hitting my butt! You run in the path of my light! That's her voice! How can you lead me when I am your guide? Are you being literal or allegorical? <laughs> me no light! Roger, run! But she said I'm running in her light! Who gives a dog? Just go! And in the final showdown, when because Marceline, you know, the moon has regenerative, regenerative, regenerative powers. <laughs> and when Marceline doesn't have that, it's a big deal. Like, she gets hurt, she gets hurt. She can't heal herself like Wolverine. And in the final showdown, basically Princess Bubblegum and Marceline are locked in a pantry. And the moon is coming closer to them and Finn and Jake are trying to uh, hold her off. But... Finn and Jake can't hold her off. The moon gets to the pantry door. She realizes that it's locked and she starts screaming at the lock. Open it. Open it, pigs. You pigs. Open it. And it devolves into like we get the scene of inside the pantry with Marceline and Princess Bubblegum talking to each other. And in the background, you just hear the moon going, pigs, 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 pigs. And then the scene cuts to a flashback for Marceline, which is the whole point of the miniseries, her story and stuff like that. But when it cuts back to the episode, you still hear pigs, pigs. And there's an inside shot very much like of Jack Torrance of Princess Bubblegum and Marceline. And you just hear the door opening. You hear the latch open. And, of course, it's locked from the inside. They're protecting themselves, opposite of Jack Torrance. So there's no way to open this door from the outside, but it opens. And there's one line where Princess Bubblegum just looks at the moon and goes, Did you just scream pigs at the lock until it opened? And they never mention it again. Wake up! Huh? pigs at the lock until it opened and i've always thought that was a shining reference because it's shot in a very similar like kind of way where you know we see jack kind of on his his right side or the camera's on his right side the door opens and you kind of just it goes from there and i've always loved that because there's there's no answer in adventure time there's no answer how did that lock get opened as far as we know a vampire screamed the word pigs at it until it opened same thing with The Shining. Nobody really knows how that door got opened. You have to have theories about it. And I had to make that connection because that's one of my favorite scenes in Adventure Time where Princess Bubblegum, the scientific mind, is once again blown away by the fact that something happened that she can't explain. And also, when that, when that drops, when I watch it, did you, did you scream pigs at a lock until it opened? Hilarious. So I, I once again, you know, Shining has been homaged and referenced in a million things. I have no definitive knowledge if that's what they were going for in Stakes, the vampire kind of horror-esque Adventure Time thing, but it's always gotten that connection for me, where they wrote in kind of something gets opened in an unexplained way and they keep it ambiguous. I love it. What was the quote that Rob made up about me? Okay, in this, okay, 
God, I feel like this podcast, we're going jumping forth. In the Knights of Vader recording <laughs> last Rob was on, we talked about more Star Wars, Clone Wars episodes and Rebels. Rob misquoted me about, what was it Breaking Bad? And he's like, Zach, like Zach said once that if you cut, I like, I, I didn't care what I see and I don't care if I ever see it again. I didn't, oh, say that yeah. about Bre- I didn't say that about Breaking Bad. I said, I, I don't see anything that I dislike and I'd probably watch more of the show if I had to. That was Breaking Bad? That was Breaking Bad. Oh, so but, it was Adventure Time. Yes, it was Adventure <laughs> Time where I said, you know what? I had my fill of this. I'm good. I think I repressed it because I just don't want anybody to say that about Adventure Time. <laughs> okay. But okay, do we, okay. Do we ever get our okay? Going back to the Adventure Time finale episode, which is like a year old now. Did we ever get a spinoff with like Fufu, the little thing in the giant like dog? Do you ever Shermie and Beth? Yeah, Shermie and Beth. Do we ever get a spinoff with like a comic no, book or something? No, no, they have they have not appeared in the comics as far as I know. The current comic book storyline is, I think they're. They're still looking for Marceline's father, who's the who's basically the devil in Adventure Time. He's oh, okay. he's missing for some reason. the The major arc of the comics is um, Simon trying to free Betty. Oh, okay. Or Ice King trying to. Well, he's not Ice King anymore, but you know Simon trying to free Betty because that's what the last bit of Adventure Time was: Betty freeing Simon. But guess what? It's never going to end. Nobody should be happy in good movies <laughs> and TV shows. <laughs> Oh, good, folks. See, folks, we're going to have another three-hour-long episode, and we're going to devote part of it to Adventure Time. (laughs) All right, Rob, do we want to do Snack uh, Cinemati and Late Night Stats and Snack, then delve into Doctor Sleep, or should we do Doctor Sleep first? That's an interesting idea. I'd be good with doing Doctor Sleep afterwards, because after we do our real questions, it would go down to me asking you if we know what we're doing next week, and spoiler alert, we don't. <laughs> so maybe we need to fill that little bit, but I All think right. you have more to say about Doctor Sleep than I do. So I could do it afterwards, but I'll leave that up to you. Right, let's you let's, the, let's uh, do it afterwards. Let's do something. Let's throw it up. Let's do something a little bit different. We'll break okay. our norm. Okay. All right, so, Rob. Uh, so every, we're trying to make people actually listen to this part of the podcast. <laughs> sure. And people usually just turn off at this point. They say, "Okay, I'll see you next week, Rob and Zach." <laughs> All right, Rob. The The Shining and Room 237, Cinemati and or Late Night Movie. And you can separate them. It's not like a bundle deal. You don't need oh, to like, oh. God. Oh, God, I thought we were grouping them. Room 237, <laughs> uh, definitely not a cinemodity to me. To me, it comes off as a YouTube video. Like, people had ideas. And yes, it, it's well done. Don't get me wrong. It's a well done documentary, in air quotes, if that's what we can call it. It's a well-done story, but that doesn't scream anything other to me than, you know, hey, I got my friends. We have some weird ideas. Here's a YouTube video about it. Late night, I think I'm kind of on the yes side for Room 237 as well as The Shining, but something like an if-else statement. Like if you have a late night movie opportunity and you are seeing – or, and you're thinking about watching The Shining, and it's someone who really knows The Shining, or maybe not knows it in the sense of, you know, Zach did his presentation or has seen Room 237, but has seen the movie and is familiar with it, then you show them Room 237. If they've never seen The Shining, then you start with that. As far as The Shining for cinemodity, I'm going to say yes. It's just a yes. I don't think there's any caveat. This is, this is yes. There's, this movie is so strange to me. It enthralls me so much. I uh, it does it unlike any other film I think I've seen uh, or very few other films so I'm going to go yes. So yes to Cinemodities for Shining, no to Room 237. Fuck how do I split cells in in an Excel document and then yes to Late Night for both but you have that kind of checks that if else statement. If they've seen The Shining you show them Room 237, if they haven't you watch The Shining. That's what I'm thinking. 
All right. Um, uh, Shining, yes, for both. Definitely. I remember once I put the, this was, I think maybe last year, I put the Shining on and like I fell asleep and I woke up right in like the room 237 part and it kind of like freaked me out a little. And I'm like, well, this works. I thought you were going to say you woke up and there was someone with a bear costume sexually assaulting you. <laughs> well, that, that happens Well, I'm not watching The Shining. That's the one time I know it won't happen. Um, but no, definite Cinemati, late night movie. Room 237, I, I completely disagree with Rob on the Cinemati part. I think this is like a bold new way. of. I think it's quite the opposite of the YouTube video because there's too much finesse going into the clips with all the superimposing and just a way of like creating reenactments of people based fair, on like footage fair. of like other stuff. A lot of I'll give you, I'll give you creativity that. went I to should, this. I should clarify. It's a good YouTube. It's a better YouTube no, video. No, no, no. If you see the crap, the good stuff on YouTube, anybody can make a YouTube video. If you have access to like a pirated version of like Adobe, <laughs> like premiere, like no, yeah. no, anybody can do that. This required some effort and some creativity that most of the people on YouTube don't have. Um, definite cinematic late night movie, how Rob kind of framed it for room two thirty seven. I would say if somebody has not seen the shining in a while, but ha- definitely, I-, I can't imagine showing Room 237 to someone who's never seen The Shining. But if somebody, most people have seen The Shining at some point in their lives, but probably don't remember it that much or have like an encyclopedic knowledge of it, I would say that's the best, co- the ideal um, kind of like, oh God, stage for this. Somebody who has okay. not seen The Shining in a while, you show them this, and then you show them The Shining is like a double feature. Ah. Late night double feature. I think, I think. Room 237 accompanied by The Shining. Okay, so you can spend four hours on those two or four hours on our Jurassic World episode. (laughs) No, Rob. Four hours on our Ted Bundy episode. Perfect, perfect. (laughs) Yes, for Monstover, yes. As the Lord intended it. See, it's interesting. The double feature idea I like and I agree with, it's just... I, I think uh, what was the order you said it, but it depends on how, how recently they have seen it. Cause I agree with you. You can't say, Oh, have you ever seen the shining? And they say, no, you can't say, okay, we're going to watch this documentary on it. So you can, I can bias your brain before you see it. I would rather of course do it the other way around, but you're saying you would show them two thirty seven first if they hadn't seen the shining in a while. Well, I would say anybody who is anybody who's not aware of the film room two thirty seven. I would show them that if they've seen The Shining. They could have seen The Shining a okay, week ago, okay. a month, a year, a decade ago. Okay, as long okay, as they yeah. have some under, as long as they've seen The Shining in its entirety at some point in their lives, that I think that's the catalyst. I think enough. I, I, think, I like it. I think Room Two Thirty Seven is a fantastic like appetizer for The Shining because I think it really gets like the juices flowing. It stimulates the mind and it has you go into The Shining much more like mentally alert as opposed to just, oh, I'm going to watch this scary, spooky moody. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that that clarifies or, or brings to light exactly what I should have said. It's not a cinematic. Zach and I are split once again. But late night, Room 237 is exactly the type of thing that I'm looking for to cause that discussion with a late night movie. Because you're, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that has seen The Shining, knows about Stanley Kubrick, and then you show them this. You're going to have a great discourse with that person about if the moon landing was fake or not. And that's that's great discussion. <laughs> maybe it's more. Maybe it's not about that. Maybe it's more about the genocide of the Native Americans or the Holocaust. That I think that's exactly why this is a late-night movie. It would work well as a late night movie for the people that have seen The Shining because you're going to get that discussion and intrigue and exposition from it. So, yeah, absolutely. All right, Rob, snack. 
I'll get mine out of the way because mine's the easiest one. I want a sunny side eggs where you have to dip the bacon into the yolk. Are you saying you only have one snack? Is that what you're saying? Well, this isn't really a snack heavy movie. I I found I found many snacks from the show. Oh, oh, I bet you did because I know you got the pantry, you got the meat, the meat freezer. And I guess the only thing I could say is that maybe we have a copy of like uh, Playgirl hanging around the restaurant. Maybe, maybe, oh. that, maybe. <laughs> that's like the bath, that, not the bathroom material. That's like the uh, the waiting area material. Sure, sure. And when you get the buzzer that you have to wait to go off for your table to be ready, there's just Playgirls going around. There you go. <laughs> so I I'm glad you brought up breakfast because the breakfast. Food, the you know the uh, the toast that you have to dip in the eggs is what you said. Yes. That no, not toast. It's bacon. It's bacon. bacon. Yes, bacon. Sorry. That so that's from the scene where Shelley Duvall brings uh, Jack Nicholson breakfast in bed, right? Oh yeah. Okay. So I saw that same scene, but when I saw that they were just eating regular old breakfast food, no, 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 not that's not enough for me. I agree with you that we could have that, but I think I'm going to expand on what you said, Zach. The Cinemodities breakfast nook. Uh-oh. It's a special location in the, in the restaurant because I think I'm just getting very, you know, like amusement park oriented that we have different <laughs> lands for different things. Because we got the wedding ceremony area. We got the Vox Lux area. We've got the laser tag area. We got the Sin Emodities area, which is the kids section. So I'm thinking about a Cinemodities breakfast nook. And maybe it's like if you want breakfast food, this is where you would go type of thing. And the only caveat I have on the Cinemodities Breakfast Nook, it's not weird. It's not crazy. I'm actually drawing on um, something that I think a lot of breakfast nooks and restaurants and hotels do. But it's a part of the restaurant where we charge insane, ex- insanely expensive prices for cheap and terrible breakfast foods. Because every fucking hotel and restaurant I've ever goddamn been to sucks with their breakfast food. And it's like $18 for a cranberry juice that's been sitting out overnight. So why don't we do that also? Because other people seem to love it. People fucking have no problem spending $25 on a cold eggs Benedict. Why can't we make some of that money? (laughs) Fuck you, the nickel. You know what you did. So that's what I was thinking. The Cinemodities Breakfast Nook. I'm glad you picked up on that as well. We need somewhere where we can, you know, really gouge the prices up for some cheap, cheap stuff. I like it, but I think I have another idea. Much like we have the wedding pavilion, why don't we annex the the Overlook Hotel? We have the Cinemodities (laughs) Hotel colon the Overlook. (laughs) We have a hotel on the premises now. Oh, that's a good idea, Zach. That's a good idea, absolutely. Oh, God. With the, I'm just, with the I'm impossible just... windows, too. <laughs> the TVs don't have cords. I'm just imagining, like, the, you go to the ho- you like go to get your reservation for the hotel. You know, you go to, like, the uh, not the concierge, but the, um, the bellhop. You know, the, the check-in desk, whatever that's formally called. And, you know, it's one of those shady ones, like you see in Law & Order, where they're like, you go up and it's like, is there, do you know where I can get some company for the night? And it's like, oh, yes, uh-huh. And it's like all that shady prostitute stuff. But, you know, anybody that actually wants that, they're going to get a dude in a bear costume in their room. <laughs> <laughs> you pay by the, it's like, oh, I'd like to stay in room 237, please. And it's like, that'll be $40. Wow, for one night? No, for the hour. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think about every room in the Cinemodities Hotel is either numbered 237 or 1408? <laughs> oh, God. That 1408 <laughs> movie. I haven't seen that in a while. 
I've only seen bits and pieces of the movie, but I know the short story. So, yeah, I remember that movie. God, I haven't seen that movie like in ten plus years. That's I remember. I don't even remember liking. It. I just remember watching it. <laughs> you ever had before? You, like, you know, you've watched something, but you have no opinion on it whatsoever. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I felt the same way about what I did see. I think I started it and fell asleep or something like that. But but it's yeah, a movie. I think you know, it exists. Just, Get some uh, or, or two thirty seven, two seventeen, and fourteen oh eight. Just get all the Stephen King room numbers in there. Oh boy, <laughs> I like it. That that's something we we're gonna have to detail a little further. The hotel, as we think about it, for sure. But I mean, yeah, I we would need a, a hotel because if people get too messed up on you know their bump of coke or what other poisons they're ingesting in their meals, you know they can't drive home after that. We're no. a safe restaurant. We take their keys before they're drunk. <laughs> We take uh, their keys and they walk through the door. Darn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It's the Ferris Bueller thing where our uh, our valets are just going on joy rides constantly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so Breakfast yeah, Nook. I love that. Yes. No, oh, no, I got more. I got more, oh, Zach. God. Uh, inspired by the scene at the beginning where uh, Dick Halloran is showing wendy and danny around the kitchen and when he's in the storage closet he goes on that great ranch rant where he's like we got dried peaches we got dried apricots we got meats we got cheeses and while he's ranting all these things off to wendy there's that scene where danny like zoom the camera danny looking at dick halloran but the camera zooms in and dick halloran looks at him and like you know through the shining telepathically he's like wouldn't you like some ice cream doc or something like that we need a way for our waiters to telepathically communicate with customers, but the customers don't know about it. So this is, this is what I mean, Zach. I want our waiters to have the ability where when they're listing off specials or you know they're going through a list that they have to give to customers since they're waiters in this restaurant, they can telepathically curse at the customers. Like I like I want and the customers can hear it, but they're not going to know. Like I said before, when you realize you're going crazy, the first response isn't, whoa, everybody. Did you know I just heard something? Did you hear anything else? Nobody's going to do that. So I'm thinking if we do it sparsely enough, you know, someone's going to be one of our waiters is going to be listing through specials. And then the customer is going to be listening attentively and it'll be something like and we have the country fried straight steak and then telepathically get that you fat fuck. And the customer is going to be like, what? What? Did, what? <laughs> so I, I want that, but for that's our no liability way for our waiters to be mean to customers. Because there's no, you can't prove it. You can't prove it. <laughs> there's no police report about telepathic incidents. We're, we're good. No liability. What do you think? I think it's another sub, like, sub line of the Cinematis restaurant. No liability. No liability. I'm always thinking about that. Absolutely. Um, the last two I think I have are actual foods. So, uh, one of them too, I think they're both pretty easy. Red rum, red <laughs> rum. I want to serve rum. That is just rum, but we have colored it red through this, the distillation process. Maybe we're making this rum in house. Maybe we're just getting cheap rum and coloring it red, but red rum easy enough, right? Sure. Okay. And the last one I have. <laughs> Is is a food, but it's also an activity. Uh, Zach, uh, you're familiar with a profiterole, right? I am not. Okay, profiterole is a puff pastry, basically, like a little, oh, okay. little puff pastry, and it's got some cream in it or something like that. Uh, profiteroles are good if you like, you know, sweets and puff pastries. 
there's a thing called a crocambouche. So a crocambouche is a tower of profiteroles. It's basically like a big pyramid, a rounded pyramid, so tower, of profiteroles. Like hundreds of profiteroles you can get in a crocambouche. Like it's a huge party food. So this is my thought. We have kind of a, something you can order or something you can go to in the restaurant, and we make a crocambouche, but it's not in the shape of a tower. It's in the shape of a door. And if you're not familiar with crocambouche, what you do is you make like hundreds of profiteroles, and then you make a caramel sauce, and the caramel sauce is like the glue that keeps the tower together. We do the same thing, but we build a, a door or a wall-shaped thing, and we let the customer hack through it with an axe. <laughs> And then when they're done, they can eat those profiteroles type of thing. And I think that's a good way, you know, just to combine the, the famous scene from this movie with a good dessert, with excess, which we love in the Cinemati's restaurant, because you'd need probably thousands of profiteroles to make a door big enough that you could hack an axe through. But it's, it's also fun. It's entertaining to our customers. It's, it's almost like I was thinking about it as the, uh, the pinata of the Cinemati's restaurant. And, you know, of course... Uh, I also think that we should kick people out if they use the axe to break down this door. And if they say, here's Johnny, we, we boot him. We just. Oh, OK, we, good. We boot him. We take their credit card and then boot him. <laughs> no bump of Coke for you. No bump of Coke. No freak DVD. No bump of Coke. No liability. No liability. Good so what enough. do you think? I thought that would be cool. Like if we have a wall of pastries that you can hack through, like I would do that for sure. I would you give also, a shot. You could also do some sort of like, um, oh, good Lord. Like, a, uh, oh, God, like the sugar glass, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, anything that, you know, we can kind of, you know, uh, solidify to some extent, but still make it easy enough to to break through. Yeah, I dig it. Cool beans. That was the last one I had. Uh, so we got some rum. We got some desserts. We got some no liability. I'm ready for Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep, for those of you who might not know, Stephen King, and I, supposedly he doesn't do drugs anymore, but... In September of 2013, Stephen King published a follow-up to The Shining titled Dr. Sleep, where apparently something, something, a bunch of stupid stuff happens with Danny. Who the hell cares? But what happens apparently is that, uh, I don't even know how to describe this. They're making a movie on it, and I, when I first heard about this, I'm like, oh, like, of course, they're getting like, a, a follow-up, a movie I'm sorry. A follow-up to The Shining being adapted into a movie. Why not? I heard like Ewan McDonald was in the movie, and I'm like, mm -hmm. that's not Danny Torrance, but whatever. He's he's a name, and I would imagine sure. he's not too expensive. So like a couple of weeks, like maybe a couple months ago, like a trailer debuted for it, and I was like, like I had I had like a ton, like of Stanley Kubrick shining like scenes in it, yeah. and I'm like, why are they doing this? I'm like, a Stephen King hates the Stanley Kubrick film. Yep. <laughs> and B, it's like, are like, are they just, and really how I thought of it was like, oh, they're just like tying it into it. Like they're just like showing like familiar images. So they hook you with like nostalgia. And I'm like, that's a really cheap marketing angle, but fine. Whatever it takes to get butts in the seats, I'm on board with. Mm -hmm. So a couple of weeks ago, I remember like seeing online that like a final trailer was released. I didn't watch it because I really didn't care. And then like, like an hour before recording this episode, I found it. And I'm watching it. And I was appalled to see that they are in certain sequences literally recreating shots from the previous film. Yeah. I'm sorry, not from the Stanley Kubrick film. Yeah. And I'm like, can you, okay, after everything we've said about this 
like movie and how just how much weight and how much just significance there is in everything in it. Imagine having the audacity and nerve to try to recreate it to sell just sell a new product. Ex- yeah, exactly. And the thing that makes me wonder about this, because like folks, if you haven't already, like by the time this goes out, I think the movie will come out like in a week or so, or maybe two weeks. Like this trailer, like if you know anything about the shining, you look at this trailer and be like, I can't believe they're doing this. That's like exactly when I watched it, you know, right before we started talking to each other, that's exactly my response. I can't believe they're doing this. Yeah. It's just nobody like, wants this. <laughs> well, I don't know though, but like I don't I think we don't want it. But I do think that they're like the dummies in the audience want it. I don't know. Do the dumb I I when I think of the dummies in the audience, I think of the people who, you know, like I said at the start, the people when they're faced with the shining, they're like, eh, it's a, it's a, I wasn't scared. I, I like is there that relap from the people who are still in love with the shining that they see this I, and they're like, I'm dying for the sequel. I I remember when I did my presentation back like six plus years ago, like at least half the class, like if not more, raised their hand when I said, like, have you seen The Shining before? Okay. And considering that this is considered a staple, I would imagine most people are familiar with en- enough elements of it, like the face through the door, the like the oh. uh, the, your the iconic icon- stuff, the, yeah, I, yes, your iconic stuff. Because even how the trailer freaking begins, it's like the exact same shot of a car driving on that long and winding like roadway, like overlooking the lake, except it's at night. Like that's the opening shot we yep. see. We see Danny Torrance open, and the other thing that shocked me is that like it's the Overlook Hotel. But it's this—it's the Stanley Kubrick Overlook. It's mm-hmm. not the 2000 miniseries. It's not a new Overlook design. It is the exact same Overlook from the Kubrick film. Yeah. And like, even in the beginning of the trailer, it shows you and McDonald walking around, and like, it's the exact same chandelier. Like, it's everything. Like, he walks into the goddamn apartment they lived in for a couple months, mm-hmm. and the the red, and it doesn't make any freaking sense because the red rum is still on the door. So you're telling me that like, at the end of the movie, that uh the, oh my god, Ullman just walked away. Yeah, I, I think that's what I gathered from the trailer where they say – and there's some throwaway line in the trailer where they're like, we shut down all operations and just abandoned it after what happened to your family. And it's like, what? What? <laughs> Why? It, yeah, and then like we – and then like – The hotel we- burns down in the original book. The hotel shouldn't be there at the end of the original Shining. Well, we're we're not gonna get into that, but because Stanley Kubrick said F you to Stephen King. Yeah, but yeah. but even go but even like within the first thirty seconds of this trailer, we have a shot of like you and McDonald looking through the axe like doorway, and then we have like a shot of like like the the iconic like overlook shining like hallways, and then we have a shot and we have a snap zoom jump scare of the two twins holding hands. Yep. Oh, and that's within the thir- first 30 seconds. And I want to read a quote that I found about this movie from the director, Mike Flanagan. And this is what he said about, um, about the movie. What okay. This is Mike Flanagan done anything I would know. Okay. He's done. I'm going to read you his, his directing, his film directing. He's done, um, Ouija origin of evil. Oh God. Oh God. <laughs> you can stop there. Right. Gerald's game. <laughs> Oculus, Hush, 
And then he directed an episode of Untold Stories from the E. Oh, no. He was the associate editor for an episode of Untold Stories of the ER. He directed an episode of, or no, he edited an episode of Million Dollar Listings, Los Angeles. <laughs> and he's a writer, director, creator, editor, and executive producer of The Haunting of Hill House. Okay, so Netflix. nothing nothing I would know him from, and nothing yes. stands out to me. Okay. So this is the quote that he said in regards to Dr. Sleep. And keep in mind that within the first 30 seconds of the trailer, we have a jump scare Featuring the twins from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Mm-hmm. And I quote, reconcile. Okay, I'll move, blah, blah, blah. okay. While this is from the article right now. While the film Doctor Sleep is intended to be a direct adaptation of the 2013 sequel novel, director Mike Flanagan said Doctor Sleep would still acknowledge Kubrick's The Shining in some way. Flanagan said it is an adaptation of the novel Doctor Sleep, which is doc- which is Stephen King's sequel to his novel. The Shining, but this also exists very much in the same cinematic universe that Kubrick established in the adaptation of The Shining. He explained working with all the sources, quote, reconciling those three at times very different sources has been kind of the most challenging and thrilling part of this creatively for us. Mm. He first visited the novel, then had a conversation with King to work out adapting both sources. As part of the process, Flanagan recreated scenes from The Shining to use in flashbacks. He also avoided the horror film trope of jump scares, as The Shining did. Keep in mind, folks, the first 30 seconds of the trailer has a jump scare of Stanley Kubrick iconography from The Shining. Jesus. And this is the thing that pisses me off, is that you have... Stephen King, who despises the film, has despised it for almost 40 years. Yep, yep. You have a director who claims to not want any, not doing any of this stuff. And this is the thing, too. I would imagine Stanley Kubrick probably had written into his contract at the time that they couldn't make a sequel to this without his involvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have. I would so, totally imagine that. Yeah, and this is the thing that bothers me. That like for the same reason why that the Kubrick estate won't let us have like the Ullman Hospital scene, yet they will allow a bastardization of the of his film. Oh God. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. It's it makes me genuinely angry because it's yeah. like you have you have a, like Stanley Kubrick isn't just your like token filmmaker he's one of the very few maker like filmmakers in the history of cinema that is truly like imitable there is not just like uh, it's just there's nobody else like him he he was this like once in a lifetime or mm-hmm. once in a generation filmmaker that you don't get another of and yet warner brothers in a cheap like effort to make a buck is just let's just use stuff from the film it doesn't yeah, I'm, matter. I'm imagining that there's people at at Warner Brothers or uh, Warner Brothers are doing Doctor Sleep, right? Yeah, yep. they're doing the the footage recreation footage. But I imagine there's someone there who's like, "Oh, it sucks that we can't like soft reboot The Shining." And then some intern went, "No, Stephen King wrote a sequel, like you know, 20, 30 years later." And they go, "Thank God, we can do that. Money, 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 money." Yeah, that's that's it's okay, like. That's the weird thing. Cause like when they first announced this, it sounded like a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, but then I realized like the only thing that I, I can I never really had any genuine interest in seeing this. But like the idea was kind of like interesting, being like, oh, like on a like a creative level, as a producer, it's like, oh, you have 
Stephen King, who's really hot right now when it comes to like readapting his works, it's interesting that we keep getting readaptations of already familiar Stephen King works, whether it be Carrie, Pet Cemetery, it. It's amazing that none of the stuff he's written in the last twenty five years gets adapted into new stuff. Isn't that amazing? That's well, I mean, King. I mean, Zach, you're clearly forgetting the uh, the the grandly successful TV adaptation of Under, Under the, the Dome, Dome, starring Dean Norris. Well, <laughs> sure. No, I agree with you. Everything, all his adaptations in the recent years have not been. I haven't enjoyed them at at all. But I think it's interesting, though, that like Hollywood has been like, so, like they can they put him again. They hold King in such high regard, yet they refuse to adapt any of his new stuff. Yeah, it doesn't have that uh, that power like the old stuff does. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think and I think find it interesting that like oh, King doesn't like anything Kubrick did. So why would you pull from that? Do again, it goes back to the whole thing too. Is that like do something new, do a new overlook? Yes, you can say it's the sequel to The Shining because it technically is. It's it's the sequel. It's the adaptation of the sequel book. Mm-hmm. But the things I remember when my mother again for uh, spoiler alert for people who who want to read Doctor Sleep and who haven't seen it because my mother read that and she really liked the book. Okay, um, she liked it and she said, "Oh, it's really cool." In the end, what happened? And I'm like, "Okay, what happens?" She goes, "In the end, like I don't know because every movie now has to be. I'm sorry, every book, everything now has to be like a Marvel like battle at the end." Of course, she goes like in the end of the book when like Danny's fighting like all the. The villains, Jack Torrance shows up to save him, and Jack Torrance is redeemed. He essentially, <laughs> Jack Torrance. Okay, thank you. That's the correct response. That's the correct response. <laughs> what the we, fuck? We have Force Ghost Jack Torrance. That's what I was about to say. This is so ridiculous. I I, I know, but this is the million dollar question now. Are we going? This feels like a Rise of Skywalker level oh question God. now. <laughs> I think Rob knows where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. Are we going to get a digitally de-aged Jack Nicholson? Oh, 100%. That has to happen, right? 100%. Now that you said that, because I didn't know much about the book. The only thing I really know about Dr. Sleep, the book, is that Danny Torrance is like a falling down drunk to suppress The Shining. I don't know if they're going to put that in the movie, but that's that's literally like anything I knew about Dr. Sleep. Um, I never read it, but that just sounds ridiculous to me <laughs> and i want to to point out again i okay i know last year folks i had this like the exact same rant so i'm gonna that's why i saved it for the very end so you can tune out after this part is that like i complained about hollywood 2018 and spoiler alert i actually really liked that movie it was no like i genuinely enjoyed it it was nowhere near as bad as like i was expecting it to Ooh, be oh yeah i guess we can say now i've finally seen it and i actually liked it too <laughs> yeah and rob doesn't even remember the first halloween other than like it scared like the crap out of him yeah, thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that pisses me off, like after all we've been talking about for like three hours, there's a scene in this trailer, and in what makes it even worse, it's it's the J.J. Abrams thing of we have Danny Torrance riding his little like tricycle or big wheel down the hallway, and it's not the footage from The Shining. They reshot yes. the exact same footage, and what makes... And this is the part that genuinely makes my blood boil. He stops, turns around, we see the room 237 door, and mm-hmm. the door opens by itself. Yep, no key in it either. I noticed no that. No key in it. And yeah. you're, so, so you're completely ruining... You are retelling the first film. You are... This is like a George Lucas, like, special edition thing again. You are retelling a perfect... Yeah. Or is, like, you have a film. Like, it's very rare for a film to be considered perfect. 
you have pretty much for all intents and purposes a perfect The Shining that you feel compelled to read. Like, and it's not even just a perfect film, just in the film itself. It was a perfect film directed by one of the most, oh God, I, oh, I don't want to say it, like a filmmaker that was beyond reproach, Stanley Kubrick. And yet Mike Flanagan feels, oh, I can do this better than Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Fuck. And yeah. It's like, F you, Mike Flanagan. No. Like, if you want to, like, fill in, like, blank spaces, like, like how we talked about, like, oh, yeah. like, 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 we want to know what happened, like, at the scrapbook scene. Or, like, what happened to Wendy when Jack goes investigates room 237. If you want to do those moments, if you want to fill in the gaps, that's fine. But build, you do- build off something where it there's an empty plot of land. Don't build off of something that's already been furnished and established. Because you can't replicate perfection. Exactly. Yep. And like, it makes me angry. Like it genuinely makes me angry. And we haven't even gotten into the plot of this film. The plot of, well, not the film, but the plot of the book is like, there's a vampire cult and Danny Torrance has to team up with a little girl and they fight a vampire cult. And the only way they can fight the vampire cult is by being on home turf. And that's the overlook hotel. So like the last 30 minutes of this movie is going to be like home alone. And the overlook hotel is going to be the McAllister house. (laughs) Are they actually vampires in the book? Do you it's know? it's something like that. I think they changed it in the movie, but I'm pretty. I remember. I remember when the book was being released in college, and I was reading about it. And I remember reading the synopsis, being like, "Danny Torrance is fighting vampires." I'm like, "What the hell is this?" And I was like, "I don't care." Like again, you can't improve upon perfection, oh, Stephen King. Fuck. I'm reading I, from the. Oh God! It's so the 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 villains are a group of quasi immortals. Many of which possess their own shine abilities who wander whoa, whoa, across the whoa, United stop, States stop, and no hold stop, on. Oh god, no, there's more is stop stop the tape. <laughs> say the phrase stop say the phrase quasi immortals without breaking out into laughter. You can't, you can't at all. So okay, okay. I don't want Rob to say any more about this because this is kind of like better. No, they're they're, no, they're no. Stephen King's this, stupid ver- version of vampires. Stop. <laughs> this is like Matthew Bright saying, like naming underage girls he had sex with. I don't want to know anymore because it's only gonna get worse and it's only gonna get worse. Fair, so fair. I'll I, that. so <laughs> and I'm going to end this episode with an open end, well, maybe not, or maybe a rhetorical question for the audience, but I'm pretty sure Rob will answer it. And this is my question. Based on what I've seen in this trailer and based off the very limited synopsis Rob was able to read until I stopped him, is there a good possibility that Stephen King only wrote this novel? Oh my god, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to ask you to ask this question again, Zach. In the book, Dr. Sleep, the fucking little girl has the ability to shine and predicts (sighs) 9-11. Oh okay. god, this sounds so bad. <laughs> okay, 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 well, okay, folks. You know, okay, what? I'm, I'm, I'm closing okay. the page. I'm done. I'm done with Doctor Sleep. I'm ready for the okay. question. <laughs> okay, before I get to the question, though, and this part will have to be edited out. <laughs> folks, Rob and I just had a quick little conversation, and, and like Rob said, it's not a lie. We still, we're still trying to figure out what the next episode is, but there's a very real possibility that there's going to be no episode up at episode October twenty eighth. And you might have to wait until Halloween day for the final episode of Monstover because we might have something in mind for that episode. <laughs> Monstover gets even more disjointed. <laughs> <laughs> the only proper way to conclude Monstover 2019. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. See, how, see how it goes. Keep an eye out. You know, of course, we'll have an episode that week. We'll never just leave you hanging. But uh, 
If it's delayed, you know it's always going to be for a grand old reason. All right, Rob. So this is the question I was going to ask you. I'm ready. Did Stephen King write this just to spite Stanley Kubrick? Mm, Knowing that people would, when this film does come out, that it would inevitably be, oh God, forever be linked to Stanley Kubrick's film based on what they're doing, and that by just by association devalue that film's importance. I would have to guess, since I don't know for sure. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Stephen Stephen King is, you know, when he wrote this sequel to Dr. Sleep, it, it was kind of like, uh, at least what I know from his, his bibliography, is that this book came when he was finally winding down at least, you know, what existed at that point, the Dark Tower series. Where, you know, he got up to part seven or something like that with the Dark Tower series, and then there was the Dark Tower that didn't get a number, and then there was Dr. Sleep. I, I feel like, you know, that that is exactly what he was looking at because, you know, when when he was writing the Dark Tower series, he was like, this is my universe. The Dark Tower is connected to all my other books and they all take place in the same universe. And whenever I read one of the Dark Tower books, which I can't stand, like I love Stephen King's books. I hate the Dark Tower series. But uh, like, that's what I got. I got the sense of this is going to be a movie series, a franchise one day. And I think, you know, when that bombed, what was that, Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey, it was like, what else can we do? And Stephen King, before Dr. Sleep, had some success with, as we said, Under the Dome, that TV adaptation. And I think maybe a year or two after Dr. Sleep, Hulu did the adaptation of 11-22-63. So I totally think maybe if it it wasn't his intention, I'm going to write this and sell the rights like a... uh, you know, like a Michael Crichton type of thing where he was just writing books to sell to movie studios, he had to have it in the back of his head. He did not like the legacy that The Shining has because it's overshadowed by the film and not his novel that he had to undo the crimes against his writing. I could totally see Stephen King having that mentality, and now it's finally coming to fruition. Stephen King has a current net worth of $400 million. He's one of the most revered authors, yet he, for some reason, can't... Think of all the adaptations there are of his books, of his Mm -hmm. works. Yet he still can't... Like 40 years later, he's still... Or technically 35 years when this was written. He's still that angry about it. Yeah, Can you imagine having every... Like This is a man that got ran over by a car, has all this success, has millions of fans worldwide, yet he can't get over the fact that one adaptation very early in his career of such things wasn't the way he saw fit, and he just can't get over that. That He feels that now, Mm -hmm. 20 years after the filmmaker is dead, he's going to sit there and do this. And this is the question I'd love to know. I Again, considering that Kubrick, again, had all these things with his films... I would imagine there must have been a clause in his Shining contract, probably from like sometime in 1970-something, that they that Warner Brothers could not use any of his fill, any of his stuff, unless he's unless his him or his estate signed off on it. Which I'm guessing they probably wrote a check to his estate. Yeah, I would I would totally imagine that, and you know I think that uh, this is something I'm sure has stuck with Stephen King for a long, long time. Um, because, you know, The Shining in 1980 uh, came out, and, uh, you know, he's had that legacy with it forever, but he's certainly always been, as I've described him, a self-centered author. 
like a lot of his characters are him. Of course, you know, we everybody knows like every book he writes, most of the books he writes take place in Maine where he lives. They're about things that happen to him. You know, I think the best and most notable example is Misery. That was his like dream of somebody loving his work so much that they need to capture them and, and hold them hostage type of thing. And of course, then even after Misery, when you get to the mid 90s, when he did his his full rehab stint, I, I can only imagine once you go sober, the things that hearkened on you as an artist start to grate on you more. And that thing with Kubrick has to be one of those from everything we've heard about Stephen King. So I could totally see that, that that is totally his mindset, maybe not completely consciously, but it's some motivation back in the in the dark corner of his mind, if anything. All right. Well, Rob says this. I'm going to play a clip. I'm gonna, I, oh, I don't know how it's going to sound. Um, all right. I can always edit that. But, Rob, I guess neither one of us can talk. But I, I'm going to play this clip and for oh. our audience. We're, we're going to edit it out or we'll insert the audio and then Rob and I are going to respond to it. Okay. Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance, an unstable writer who takes the job of winter caretaker at the secluded Overlook Hotel. Is there something bad here? Well, you know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Things that people who shine can see. Jack and his son Danny have a psychic gift, a shining that lets them see the ghosts of the murdered people at the Overlook. Those ghosts terrorize Danny while they slowly drive Jack insane. <laughs> Jack Torrance He's an alcoholic He doesn't know how to control it And he blames his son and his wife For his artistic impotence Whenever you come in here and interrupt me You're breaking my concentration You're distracting me And it will then take me time to get back to where I was There's something about this hotel That just wants the people who go there To murder each other Come and play with us, Danny The Shining is filled with the kind of iconic scenes you'd expect from one of history's greatest directors. But Kubrick made many changes to King's story that didn't sit well with its author. I can enjoy it on the same level that you could enjoy a beautifully restored Cadillac without a motor in it. You know, my rap about it is there's no character arc. In the book, Jack Torrance goes from an, a nice guy who's trying to get better for his family and for himself. And I felt like Jack Nicholson played Jack Torrance as though he were crazy from the Crazy jump. for minute one. That is uh, quite a story. Talking with Mr. Ullman in the office and Ullman saying this and that and Jack's going, yes. <laughs> Absolutely, Mr. Ullman. Well... You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. I also thought that Kubrick had taken a pretty strong, scary, suspense, horror novel and turned it into an art film. I don't think that could have been like any different from Room 237. <laughs> any more different yeah. from Room 237. <laughs> but the thing about this, though, is that, again, King's comments, yeah, I'm shocked. Well, I'm not shocked. 
But like, I just can't wrap my head around the fact of being that successful over your career and still being angry about the one thing that didn't go your way. I guess yeah. it's just, I guess it's the fact that like, if you have everything else in life, it's that one thing that's always going to be a thing that stands out. But it's interesting that in the, um, in, I can't believe that even like King makes fun of Jack Nicholson. Like if this was like ten years, that was you do not make fun of Jack Nicholson. And Jack Nicholson's <laughs> considered also one of the greatest actors of all time. I think it was in the behind the scenes stuff for The Shining on the Blu-ray. Stephen King, I'm sorry, Steven Spielberg t- is talking about it. He goes, "Oh, I thought Jack Nicholson was too ca- his performance is too campy." And I'll, I'll insert the clip here where this uh, Steven Spielberg tells this anecdote, and he goes, "Well, Stephen, who are your favorite actors? Quick, without thinking." And Steven Spielberg like rattles off a couple of names like uh, Clark Gable, uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Spencer Tracy, and he goes, "Stop there." And Spielberg goes, "Okay." He goes, "Well, my favorite, one of my favorite actors is Jimmy Cagney." And Jimmy okay. Cagney was this very over the top like performer. He's the one everybody knows from like Scarface with the um the original yeah. Scarface with the grapefruit into the woman's face. Jimmy Cagney in most of his roles had this kind of like over the top energy that he brought to roles. Spielberg concludes it by saying that like what Kubrick's response was just because it's not what you wanted doesn't make it over the top. If that just because mm-hmm. you don't think that's what's best for it doesn't mean that it's inappropriate for what I'm going for. I saw Stanley St. Albans, and, and he asked me, how did you like my movie? And I only seen it once, and I didn't love Shining the first time I saw it. I have since seen Shining 25 times, one of my favorite pictures. Kubrick films tend to grow on you. You have to see them more than once. And I was telling him all the things I liked about it, and he saw right through me. And he said, well, well Stephen, obviously you didn't like my picture very much. Tell me what you didn't like about it. I thought Jack Nicholson, who was a great actor, I thought it was a great performance, but it was almost a great kabuki performance. It's almost like kabuki theater. He said, you mean you think Jack went over the top? And I said, yeah, I, I, I kind of I did. And he said, okay, quickly without thinking, who are your top favorite actors of all time? And I want you to think, just name off some names. So I quickly, you know, went Spencer Tracy, you know, Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, you know, Cary Grant, Clark Gable. He said, stop. He stopped me. He said, okay, where was James Cagney on that list? And I didn't have, I, I thought, well, he's, he's up there high. He said, I said, Albert, he's not in the top five. He said, you don't consider James Cagney one of the five best actors around. You see, I do. This is why Jack Nicholson's performance is a great one. Here's Johnny. To this day, I cannot figure out why King is so angry about this. Yeah, opinions, man, they exist. <laughs> but like the thing about this, like, like who if Stanley Kubrick didn't make The Shining, who and it's not like Stephen King didn't get any extra additional bump from that. It wasn't like it came out and it damaged his career. It's not like Stephen King was trying to sell a manuscript in the summer of 1980, and guess what? He got rejected because people hated The Shining. Mm-hmm. That's why I mean he he is still to this day ben, de- yeah. eh, benefiting off that film. Absolutely. You know, he hates it. And, like, I, I, again, I, I think Rob Scott, I, I, even though I'm going to reserve my final judgment until, until I see this dumb movie. Sure. But, like, it's hard to not at least understand the perspective that King wrote this solely to try to tarnish the 1980 film's yeah. legacy. Yeah, it, it, seems, it seems that way to me from what I know about Stephen King and, and his kind of uh, perception of his art throughout the years. But 
Uh, of course, you know, I think that's another something he's going to admit to. It's just going to be a rumor mill type of thing. But I, I got to imagine there's other people thinking that while we're thinking the same thing. If they know that Stephen King doesn't like the Kubrick movie and then, you know, The Shining 2, Dr. Sleep comes out so many years later, there's it, it, it leads itself to that story that he was doing it for that kind of uh, not pettiness or maliciousness, but that um, the I think revamping. I think it's maliciousness. Kind of malicious towards that film, but I I think Stephen King sees it more as reclaiming his property. Then why then why did he like that's the weird thing about Stephen King though? Like look at all the subpar adaptations of our of of his works that are in existence. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, I, I, Rob knows for like God for like a year now. I've talked about doing like the Stephen King series, and like Rob's never seen Sleepwalkers. No, nope. Sleepwalkers is like the the most insane movie you will ever see, based on like com- like a commercial property. And the amount of like talent there is in that film is like bonkers. And I don't ro- want Rob to look into that just now because we'll get to Sleepwalkers one day. Okay. But it's like it's one of those movies that like oh. He's okay with that. And I wonder if part of it, too, is the mm. fact that, like, he feels like Stephen King... Um, oh, God, all these freaking names that begin with the letter S. Stanley Kubrick outdid him. And I wonder yeah. if... I, think if, I don't think it's the fact that he's mad because it didn't go his way. I think it's jealousy. I think, again, King is probably a narcissist, and he probably sees that Kubrick outdid him. Yes, that's a really good way to put it. Yep, that's what I was getting at with him being a very self-centered author earlier. I think that's exactly got to be part of a big part of the motivation from him. Yeah. So if I can't beat him, I'm going to ruin his legacy now. And I'm going to buy off, much like how Kubrick was able to buy me off yep. when I wasn't really didn't have the stature or clout to defend yeah. myself. "Quote yeah. unquote." Now that he's no longer around for 20 years, and his widow is like 90. Christiana is like 20. Oh God, she's like 90 years old now. Okay, I, and probably the daughters are in charge of like probably managing her her. Yeah. Just bills and her well-being. They probably see, oh, Warner Brothers is willing to write us a check for twenty million dollars to do whatever they want with it with the footage or just reshoot anything that we want. So why not? Hell yeah. Get that paycheck. I wonder, I don't know how much did this cost? Like I see. What was the budget on this? This had to be a hundred million dollar film. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Absolutely. but I, I definitely think, you know, it's uh it's something that I, I've been familiar with with artists, you know, because art gets adapted, readapted, recreated, remade, uh, reworked, and and it all comes down to, you know, yeah, you give those rights away at the start, or maybe not give them away, but you give your permission type of thing, and it doesn't always turn out the way you like, and it, it all comes down to the artist, to how you handle it, and I think what we're seeing is what we've discussed is Stephen King is not happy about it, and he's trying to reclaim that territory by tarnishing this this older film. But, you know, the other side of the coin, I think, happens a lot more with music. I mean, uh, still to this day, when I talk to anybody about the song Mad World, they think of the Gary Jules and Michael Andrews version from Donnie Darko. And that's a great song. And I find it kind of funny, I find it kind of sad. The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you, I find it hard to take When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world Mad world But that song was written by Tears for Fears almost 20 years earlier And I find it kind of funny, I find it kind of sad 
Tears for Fears is like, we don't care that more people know Gary Jules and Michael Andrews writing that song than we do. We're just happy that it got out there. We wrote that song, and we wrote it very upbeat. They wrote it very down-tempo, but we're glad that people are listening to it. And that's where they differ from Stephen King, where Stephen King's not saying, oh, I'm glad they did something different with my work and drew attention to it. He's more of the one saying, no, mine. I don't like what you did. I need to undo it. You know, Tears for Fears still tours to this day. And when they play Mad World, they play their version. They're never going to play the other version. They're never going to play a different version because they know it's not theirs. And I think that's, from my artistic opinion, that's what Stephen King should realize. That's, I mean, I, we could argue this to death, do a whole other episode about it. Once your art is out in the world, you own a little bit less of it. I know that's a Star Wars argument. Who owns Star Wars? The fans are George Lucas or Disney, whoever the hell now. But once your work is out in the world and it gets known in a certain way, who owns it? That's a tough question. And, and artists deal with that in different ways. And Stephen King is dealing with it, as we said, in that little more malicious way, we think. Yeah, because like, I mean, I'm even looking trying to find the budget for Dr. Sleep. And I can't, I, I can't find anything on it. All I keep seeing is articles claiming that The Shining was, 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 was a, I don't want to say it was a flop, but a lot of people, because they're saying like, oh, it only made $44 million on a $19 production budget. <laughs> well, this, but this was also in 1980. <laughs> yeah, with it, exactly. With, with inflation, a $19 million budget is around like 60 million and 44 million is around like 150. So like in today's dollars, it tripled its budget. And that was also back in the day too, where they just kept re. Like that was in the 1980s where they just kept re-releasing things over and over and over again. Yep. And never mind, there was Blu-ray. Re- not Blu-ray. There was VHS rentals. There was Laserdisc. There were VHS copies back when they used to cost like sixty dollars a piece. <laughs> okay. So no. I think it's kind of nervy to say at the box that that, that the Shining was an underperformer at the box office. Mm-hmm. Much like what Rob and I have been saying now for a while when it comes to. Um, the what you call it the, the twilight zone revamp i think the phrase everybody involved should be ashamed of themselves oh yeah definitely comes to mind yeah yeah i i feel the same way i mean I, that trailer i have no interest from that trailer it's gonna look like some bonkers nonsense and and we'll see how it goes <laughs> the shining was the 14th highest grossing film of 1980 oh okay yeah, below Smokey and the Bandit 2, The Blue Lagoon, The Blues Smokey Brothers. Smokey is the Bandit! <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit 3! Smokey is the Bandit! Popeye, Empire Strikes Back, Airplane. But it's above Caddyshack, Friday the 13th, oh, and, wow. and Cheech and Chong's next movie. Oh, Interesting. And it also outgrossed the Song of the South remake, a reissue. Wasn't uh, wasn't Elephant Man nineteen eighty or was that eighty? Yep. Or yep. 81? Yep. Oh, that was eighty. Okay, okay. That made twenty six million dollars. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not an animal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, that's in, it's so weird, you know, when you dive into these things and it's like, it, it's yeah, it's just so strange and convoluted to talk about because it's just like it, it's going to happen. Nothing we're saying is going to stop this movie from coming out and all these intentions happening. And it's just, you know, what it's going to be interesting to see. Is it bomb? Is it successful? Are we going to get a lot of reviews that are like, this is better than The Shining? Blah, 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 blah. You know, no, it's, it's no, going to be no, crazy. The critics won't say it's better. Okay. The, 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 Twitter is going to say it's better than The Shining. I'll no, bet you anything. No, I'll bet you 
anything that there's a group of people that gain momentum that say this is the better movie. Absolutely. Oh, well, of course. Well, there's always going to be that contingent of any sort of like fan base. But I think, remember, depending on what we think, there's a possibility that King wants this to be bad. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. To tarnish that reputation. Sure. So if he goes back and like plays with things, I think it's not just the critics. I think he wants, it's kind of like the thing that happened with Star Wars where people start saying, oh, it's like with Star Wars, like, oh, the prequels are bad. They're, they retroactively ruined Star Wars. Yeah. And then over time, uh, return, uh, return of the, remember that Return of the Jedi starts being labeled as bad. It's like, why? Well, because the only good ones are, are Empire and A New Hope. And I think that's what he wants. I think he, much like how we talked about Kubrick playing the long game, I think that's what probably King's figuring. Oh, if I if this movie goes out there, it's bad. People just by iconography will start associating itself with the previous film, yep. and you guess what? You drag both of them down. I I can only hope that we get that's sarcastic that we get people saying either not much shining or Doctor Sleep ruined my child. <laughs> Because I would love to, if anybody says that, I would love to talk to them and be like, please, please explain to me how the original Shining was your childhood. Because <laughs> you're an interesting person in that own respect. <laughs> I bet there's someone out there. I bet there's someone yeah, out there yeah. that'll say that. Absolutely, absolutely. So, interesting. Are, okay, are, Zach's angry, and uh, yes, uh, I am. He, we're letting him off his leash. So, Sh- Shining epilogue, people. Dr. Talk- Sleep. After talking about The Shining for like three and a half hours, there needs to be there's not enough said about The Shining from the Sam Andes podcast. So I'm holding Rob against his will. I have him for once. I had the battery acid that I'm using against him. I don't so, think anybody in the audience understands that Zach sent me an a middle finger emoji in front of a picture of the Doctor Sleep Red Rum poster. That's the equivalent of like a nuclear bomb for Zach. Like yes, sending yes, yes. a middle finger emoji. That's the hardest of the hardcore disses I, from someone like him. I wanted to give the actual finger, but there were people in the lobby. And I, considering my reputation at that theater, I think it's best not to do anything that incites them against me even further. <laughs> but yeah, so um, Dr. Sleep, uh, I've had quite a few thoughts on this. Um, in the week since we recorded that episode, I actually went and listened to another podcast that did something very similar to what Rob and I do on Cinemodies, where they, they have a bunch of clips. I think Rob would love oh, them. Okay. If it weren't, okay, let me, okay, this podcast I listened to, I don't even remember their names. I don't even know how to find their episode now because like, I, I didn't subscribe to them. I would describe that podcast as a combination between Cinemodities and the Amazon Women on the Moon podcast because <laughs> the, the this is, podcast had like a ton like rob would love it they had so many clips they had so much audio but it was a man and a woman and clearly the man wanted to do the woman and, and she was from a, detroit i don't know it wasn't safe there from detroit i was hoping okay, that, okay. that maybe if i listened to the entire show they would eventually tip their cards a little bit but like the best part was i find this a very interesting dynamic between podcasters if one is a woman and one is a man the man always uses the pronoun we. Oh, when we talk about this, oh, we have audible credits. And she always says I. She always uses a singular <laughs> pronoun where he uses a combined pronoun and I find, or a plural pronoun. And I just find that fascinating. But that's neither here nor there. So I listened to them and they were like, it kind of made me, I, they had some insights, but it was that like they keep talking about like the theories in room 237 and they're like, Oh, 
Like, I don't want to hurt anybody's opinions. Like, all these people are entitled to their beliefs, but they're wrong. And I'm like, no, you don't get to have it both ways. And then at one point, too, they're talking about, like, like Scatman Crothers talking to Danny about the shine. They're like, when we say the word shine, we are not using that as a racial slur. And I'm like, why would anybody think you're using it as a racial slur? You're talking about a movie called The Shining where the characters say the words, like, oh, Danny, my grandmother and I used to call it The Shine. Some people shine, some places shine. And they're like, we don't want you to think that we're being racist by using this term. It's like, what? I I, I couldn't, it was, it was entertaining, like in a baffling way. Like it wasn't as bad as the other one before where clearly, again, the guy wanted the woman like really bad and she was 100% oblivious to it. This was a little bit more low-key, but still, it was like this weird sort of just dynamic between male and female podcasters that aren't married. <laughs> but anyway, though, so I've been doing a bunch of thinking about this. Um, I think I meant to bring it up last week when we were talking about Dr. Sleep, in that Dr. Sleep, or I'm sorry, in the Shining novel, Holleran lives. Yeah, yeah, the uh, The only person that dies is Jack, Torrance, yes. when the, when the uh, hotel burns down, and then Wendy, Danny, and uh, Halloran get away. Yes, but in the movie, he dead. Definitely. And if you remember correctly, folks, again, it was a week ago for Rob and I, it was a couple of minutes ago for you listening to this. The director says we have to reconcile. Now you're in a time vortex, listeners. <laughs> yes, we're all in the shining. We're, we're all in the overlook right now. We're recording live from Colorado. I'm recording live from Colorado. Not Rob's always oh, recording what? live from Colorado. You didn't tell me you were in, gonna be in Colorado, Zach. <laughs> we, I've always been there. I was just in the hotel. I was there half the time. I was here in New York. We, I didn't even know where I was. But no. But in this Doctor Sleep movie, there's a hollering in the movie. Oh yeah, that's right. We see um someone who's playing like not Scatman the same Crothers. Right? It's not, not Scatman, Scatman Crothers. Crothers playing Scatman Crothers. Exactly. And how they get okay? They are leaning so heavily into the Stanley Kubrick film, yet a character that the only character that dies in that film is being brought back. Imagine <laughs> watching like a Godfather Part Two. Where Marlon Brando is back. I don't I don't know. I don't understand it either, Zach. Like, what are they thinking? Like, are they just like, is this just one of those things where we're like, you know what? The audience is stupid. They won't even realize. Like, nobody knows Scatman Crothers was a person. We can just tell people he's alive and no one's gonna question it. <laughs> or is or is this King saying, you know what, I'm going to F up the previous movie? Another I mean, example of that. Is, ah, that's I mean, that's where we keep wanting to go back to, but I don't know. I feel like that's something that I would expect them to explain, whether it's fully detailed or just a throwaway line of dialogue. I think that's something they would have to explain in the film. Since they're relying so heavily on the Kubrick material, if they're bringing that character back and it's not just in flashbacks, then they're going to have to tell the audience why to some extent, right? I guess. I wish I had an answer. I, yeah, we're going to have to wait till the movie comes out. I guess. But uh, no, so that was, okay, so that was kind of the first thing was that like, I was kind of like flabbergasted at that being like, what, what the hell is going on? What did you send me on Facebook about Goosebumps? The second thing is, is that as I was like looking into more information about like excise footage from The Shining and like all this stuff, I came across two articles 
Um, I should link to both of them in the show notes. One of them is from EW called The Shining Producer Explains Ending Changes. And the other one is called Why You'll Never See the Missing 2001 Space Odyssey, something, something, something. Mm-hmm. But um, in this first article from EW, The Shining Ending Explained, it was published March 30th, 2017. It's not too long ago, about two and a half years ago. And in it, they interviewed Diane Johnson, the co-screenwriter of The Shining, and Jan Harlan, who was a producer on many of Kubrick's films. It was also his brother-in-law. And in that documentary I talked about, la- um, I also say last week, earlier this episode. <laughs> Ten minutes ago. <laughs> Ten minutes ago. He's featured a lot in it. And the weird thing is that, like, like he's there here and there. And I know Jan Harlan's kind of become the voice of the Kubrick, like, estate when it comes to his movies. Okay. Like I've said that, like, uh, uh, Kubrick's widow, Christiana, she's, like, almost 90. So I would imagine either, again, nothing, again, I have not seen her interviewed in a while. So I'm not sure if it's just she has no more interest in this or it's just she's gotten to an age where she can't do it anymore. It's anyone's guess. But I'm guessing that her brother's probably the one that's just doing it all, considering that he was much more involved with the productions than she was. And in this article, it's a really fascinating article because they talk about a bunch of things about like this excised footage, um, a lot of the different endings that Kubrick had in mind for The Shining that he eventually discarded. Yeah, that was my favorite part, the different treatments they described. Yeah, that stuff was that stuff was really neat. That's and, my only other note that I have about this is that I thought it was interesting that Halloran was going to be the possessed demon villain in the third act in one of the treatments, which I thought would have been really cool. But um, that's neither here nor there because one of the things I found interesting was that like Harlan talks about how like when like originally Kubrick didn't want to do this. And he just wanted a he wanted something commercial, and that's one thing. Even like prior to recording this, and when Rob delayed our recording by like um, by like an hour, I was kind of glad because I was rewatching that Stanley Kubrick documentary. And one thing it seemed like was that Kubrick was I don't want to say obsessed. Maybe that's not str- that's too strong of a word, but he definitely wanted his films to be box office successes, which I would imagine that most filmmakers do. Like he was not in like Kubrick was an artistic filmmaker Mm -hmm. but i think he was concerned about the box office it wasn't like one of these things like other filmmakers like david lynch where it's like okay if my films don't do well it's not the end of the world as long as i'm able to tell the story i wanted to tell i think kubrick always did have his finger on the pulse of like oh i want this thing like i want it to succeed financially not just critically because a lot of kubrick's films weren't critically lauded when they first came out and that was one of the big takeaways I took from rewatching the documentary because in the uh, 2001 article, in, in the there's a point in that article where it's referenced that Co- after the first screening of it, Kubrick and the producers and like the studio heads like had like a discussion about editing part of the film to like make it tighter, take more of the run, uh, lower the runtime. Mm-hmm. And in the documentary, they talk about that. That Christiana says it's like after the film like had its first like showing. She and Kubrick went to like a hotel room with a bunch of the producers and executives, and they basically argued for like the entire night over what to take out of the film. Okay, and I think it's interesting that like, oh, when that documentary was like produced like in two thousand one, we're we're still seeing it talked about. God, like twenty something years later, and I just found that interesting that Kubrick was somebody that was in, was. Again, he was not as abstract as a David Lynch or a Terrence Malick or some of those other filmmakers that really wanted not to kind of keep things cloudy. With that being said, it's the idea that when you get you 
apply that sort of thinking to The Shining. And I know in one of the parts where Harlan's talking, he goes, this is a quote from him. He says, very often crew members asked him, can you explain that to me? And he said, I never explain any, anything. I don't understand it myself. It's a ghost film, exclamation mark. It's a ghost film. (laughs) You can't imagine how much fuss was made over the big golden ballroom and the big lobby and huge windows that could have never fit into the hotel based on the establishing shot from the outside. Any child could see that, and Stanley's explanation was, it's a ghost film. Forget it. (laughs) And quote, it's not a movie with a serious message. I know many people think it's impossible that Kubrick did a film which didn't have serious messages and an enormous amount of theory oh an enormous amount of invented okay that person threw up put the wrong uh parenthetical an amount of theories while he was alive that was relatively quiet after his death these theories came out which were funny and partly insulting the most okay then we start seeing the, the holocaust stuff we get gets get gets attacked uh, it's a ghost an, film yeah that's an insult to Kubrick. You never deal with this thing in this sort of subject. He goes, the other ideas are much more harmless where continuity mistakes are attributed with deep meaning. But I, again, why rewatch that documentary today? Like the, like there's like an opening montage and it's literally a, it's from every single like headline, a Kubrick film got when it like was released or about basically any headline that revolved around either him or his films. And like, one of the things is like a uh, perfectionist, um, all these things, and it's like so you're telling me this is the guy that his entire life, like they even talk, I forgot about how involved Barry Lyndon was. This is a guy that invented a camera lens that could capture natural light from like candles. And apparently, like people, people in the film industry, people have been wanting the access to these lenses forever. And he, I, I think he either never let them have it. And I think at one point it was even rumored that he destroyed the lenses so nobody could oh, ever do it again. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but this was somebody who like went through such exacting detail. And even in the documentary, the part where they interviewed Sidney Pollock about Eyes Wide Shut. And I know earlier I said that film had like 400 takes. Or I'm sorry, that sequence at the end had mm-hmm. like 400 takes. He talks about Sidney Pollock that they reshot the ending sequence between him and Tom Cruise. It took three weeks for one scene. Three weeks. And yet all this time we're supposed to believe Kubrick just completely gave up with this film, put no thought into it whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. It it's doesn't doesn't jive. That's what I'm saying. And that's why, like, when I was reading this article, I'm like, God damn it, Rob, we have to add this on here because this really does it sheds a bunch of light onto something that I think yeah. is deliberately being they're shedding light onto something just to muddy the waters. Yeah, and that, I think that fits with everything we said, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, seven, 18 minutes ago with the cat's <laughs> cat instructions and the attention to detail and all of that stuff. Um, this is, you know, it doesn't seem like Kubrick would be someone who would ever give way to that belief. He was one of the people we felt, you know, would always go all the way, like full throttle 100% of the time. So we can't believe that anything was just a ghost film. Everything had meaning to him. And care and detail. Yeah. And that's and that's the thing I find fascinating about this. Because even earlier in the articles, they mentioned something like Stephen King was very opening, open to having like his work adapted. And they're like, and then parenthetical says at the time. And I'm like, I found that hilarious. And yeah, it's like so clearly there is some resentment to Stephen King just bashing this film every 10 seconds he gets. And I didn't even in that other podcast I was referencing, they play a bunch of the clips over the years of Stephen King just trashing this film. And he's never, I know one thing they pull from a lot that I haven't seen in years. They used to air it a lot on Bravo back 
if, if Bravo's even the channel anymore. And they used to air it a lot back in the mid 2000s. It was like, like Bravo's 100 scariest movie moments. Mm-hmm. Now, I've forgotten that. Like, apparently, Stephen King, all he does is bash the film there, too. So, like, Stephen King's been, like, on this, had this weird sort of, like, anti-hard on against this film for practically ever. <laughs> that That's a great phrase, anti-hard on. <laughs> it really is. like is. A, a reverse boner? Something like that. <laughs> uh, oh, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> but, but, but getting back to more of, like, we talked about the excise footage from The Shining and a bunch of things. Because I know it's cited in the article with Leon Vitale, and I'll get into my insane hatred of him in a moment. And, but uh, in the EW article, they talk about the, uh, the scrapbook. The scrapbook sequence. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the thing I find fascinating is that there's like a part in this where it was like in the article where they're like, oh, like Kubrick like disposed of all of his footage. He didn't want anybody like tampering with his films. And I'm like, and it's like he didn't like he lived in he lived in the current. He never looked in the past. And I'm like, why did he keep a prop from a scene he completely took out of the movie? Like if he mm-hmm. if he didn't care about anything that he excised, then why not dispose of the prop? Like it doesn't have any, like it has really no purpose in the film. I think in the article it says you see it like in one or two shots very early on, but it serves it serves no narrative purpose. And I think I, I meant to mention this in our discussion uh, fifteen minutes ago was that this was oh god I think it was on the Reels channel they did like like a, one of those really super duper condensed condensed like biographies of Stephen King, and they talk about the acts from The Shining. And they say that I think they produced seven axes for the production of the film. Four of them were destroyed during the production just because Kubrick had Nicholson do so many takes with them. He broke them after a while. But apparently there's still three in existence. One of them, oh God, one of them is with the Kubrick estate. The other one I think is in the Warner Brothers archives. And the third one is in like uh, private collector's hands. Okay. And that's the thing I find interesting, though, is like if Kubrick didn't care about any of this stuff, why did he? Like that's the thing. If someone's going to keep props from the movies, and it's not just the studio keeping them, it's the filmmaker keeping them. I have a hard time believing, considering that a a negative takes up like what hardly any room. Mm-hmm. And yes, you have to keep it in a canister, and keeping a, a, a an axe prop is different. You got to store it under different conditions. I get, I, I yeah. can see that. But considering that Kubrick probably had probably all of his films in a salt mine somewhere, how hard would it be to keep one like one like God three minute long sequence of film? Yeah, exactly. It seems Why, totally you, possible. You keep it for reference for no other. You might again if somebody like Kubrick was that exacting. He would have kept it just I might not ever need it I might never want the public to ever see it But I'm going to keep it just in case somebody ever does need it Yeah, yeah I mean this reminds me of our discussion uh, way back when When we did Fantastic Four Remember that documentary said Avi Arad burned all those prints This just reminds me of that Like, you know, that seems so inconceivable to us, right? That you would burn all copies of something yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking of. Because even I found this article. I didn't send this one to Rob though. But apparently, an edit one of the editors that Kubrick used for The Shining, uh, I think, died re- well, recently, as in the last couple of years. In 2017 or 18, a bunch of his personal effects went up for auction, and one of them was a print of The Shining. And guess what? It ran two minutes longer than the official edit did, oh, and geez. the and the opening bid for it was like thirty seven hundred dollars, 
And I'm like, That's a, it? that well, was the opening <laughs> bit. I, 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 tr- oh, I looked okay. into it. I couldn't find the final, the, the final. What it sold for. Yeah, I, I couldn't find it. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. I don't know. Maybe if that they weren't allowed to sell it, something like <laughs> that. I would imagine you can't. Like you could like, probably mm-hmm. Kubrick probably gave this person a copy of it. And that's it. Like you probably can be given it. You can't sell it. So I'm not sure. Maybe if Warner Brothers just bought it, be like, okay, give like we'll give you like we'll give you like tell us what you like get get it appraised and we'll buy it from you. Yeah, something like that. But if that's like whether because I was thinking about like like thirty seven hundred dollars, you could start you could start a Kickstarter overnight and say we are trying to raise money to buy this print of the film to show it. You could you could very easily raise ten thousand dollars overnight from like people like me being like okay this is worth contributing like fifty bucks to to the chance of being like okay at least we, even though we might not be able be able to ever show it we can then donate it to like oh god like the oh god like like the museum of modern art or something like that yeah and then they can show it as a piece exactly. of art and the fact that I couldn't find any stories about it even selling. Leaves me to believe that probably either the Kubrick estate or Warner Brothers bought it. If that's the case, though, that means the footage still exists. That mm-hmm. means that all this nonsense about, again, this is where we're going to also kind of like shift into the Leon Vitale part of the story. It's not like somebody getting off at the fact that this footage doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Okay. And, okay. And so then getting to the Leon Vitale part of the story, and I remember seeing, like, I, I, Back when I did my research on the Shining presentation I did back in college, his name would show up in a couple of places, but I always knew him as like Lord Barrington in, in Barry Lyndon. He was an actor in that film. I think he told me, he told me, God, he's like 20 years old in that. And then like over time, I watched that Kubrick documentary back in the day. He's like listed or his title is like assistant to Kubrick. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I know every single time and he more or less started to show up a lot once like the film like the, the room 237 people the people that really like overanalyzed all of kubrick's films that he started to show up again because every single time somebody has a theory about anything kubrick did leon vitale basically like jumps out of like a wi- jumps through a window and is like that didn't happen that wasn't <laughs> kubrick's intent and it's like shut up like have you not ever heard of film theory it's like just because somebody throws a theory out does not mean that you have to personally come out of the woodwork yeah and like oh god but who's the, who's the the basketball player remember, you remember rob the guy co commercials i forget the basketball player's name that every single time somebody tried to like throw like a basketball or like a crumpled piece of paper up into a trash can he'd be like no uh uh not this time I, oh god vaguely vaguely okay <laughs> he's a i don't basketball. remember the name i can yeah. i can see him but i can't think of his name yeah and that's who leon vitale is when it comes to anything regarding if you have an opinion on stanley kubrick that leon vitale doesn't like he will show up and tell you you're wrong i'm pretty sure he's gonna break into this podcast at some point and tell us that we're full of it okay. and i've always hated him pretty much ever since then because that's all he does all he does is again he, he kind of his Oh God! Designate. It's kind of like self-designated himself as like, oh God, the oh God, the truth sayer, the, the expert, the authority on it. Yes, he, he's yeah, he's the he's basically granted himself the title of like the living persona of Stanley Kubrick. That like anything yeah. that has regarding his work, he's the official like final say on it, and that drives me nuts because like I don't care how much you work with him, you can't get in somebody's mind like that. It's kind of like the person that worked at the patents office with Albert Einstein. I don't care how long you work with them. They have such a inimitable like mm-hmm. mindset. I don't care. There's no, there's no osmosis there. 
Yeah, yeah. But the thing that really, and I've always hated Leon Vitale, but the thing that kind of drove me over the edge was that in this Yahoo article about the 2001 thing is that he goes, uh, there's a part of the article that says, still, there's one part of the 1968 viewing experience that Nolan, that being Christopher Nolan, can't duplicate for modern audiences. When 2001 first played for premiere audiences, the film was roughly 20 minutes longer than the one that went into wide release. The baffled reaction of those first moviegoers as well as the studio sent Kubrick back to the editing room to excise roughly 17 minutes of footage. Unlike some filmmakers, he wasn't concerned when it came to the film that ended up on the cutting room floor. Once he released the movie, that was it, said... Uh, Leon Vitale. There's a place in London where all the city's refuse is taken and I remember taking van loads of outtakes and stuff that was never used and burning them because he did not want any of his old material. And then he goes on to say, okay, there's more. While Kubrick's personal copy of those deleted 17 uh, minutes roughly went up in smoke, uh, it is worth knowing that the footage still exists in the Warner Brothers vaults and as far as the studio is concerned, that's where it'll stay. The stance may disappoint film buffs, but to music, oh, eh. that stance may disappoint film buffs, but to its music to Vitaly's ears. "Quote: I truly believe that they, I truly believe that they should absolutely not do anything to interfere with the film as it is now. If anybody has that kind of material, I would hope they'd say there's a reason why he didn't use it. And the weird thing about this, and there's more to this I could get into, but for brevity's sake, I won't." He says something, he goes on, he goes later in the article and he says something on the lines of, he's like, oh, when Kubrick like released a film in its final cut, that was it. Like there was no going back to it. And I'm like, well, it wasn't his final cut. He was, he was strong armed into taking it out of there. So like I've always, and that goes to the shining thing too, at the end, with the whole room 237 sequence, there's no, I think in the EW article, they talk about the, uh, the scrapbook sequence being cut out in an earlier Edit of the film it, that was not a, a last minute edit yeah. and the thing that drives me nuts though is that like well it was part of his final edit if people didn't strong arm him like it wouldn't have happened and then even doing more research on this i looked to see if any other filmmaker had ever edited the film after it was in, into release and the thing with the shining and the, the 2001 are kind of like it's an apples versus orange and oranges comparison because the shining was in release the 2001 footage was not in release or for wide release, I mean. And it's the notion of, I don't think a filmmaker has ever done that before, where they've released a film into the public, into like the public space, and then edit it from there. Yeah, yeah, I'm not familiar with it. At least in a commercial sense. Like I'm pretty sure there's probably some auteur independent filmmaker that's done that. I'm not I'm not arguing that like, oh, like a uh, uh like somebody who makes a film gets like their local like independent art house film to show it. Sure. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna cut stuff out of it later on, like once it's gone, the bigger, better things. I, I tried look, I did research and I could not find another example of a, a filmmaker editing their film in wide release. And there's really no precedent for this. And this notion that, like, oh, you can't do this, like it's the it's the director's intent once they release a once they release a film. Blah, 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 blah. And I think part of it, too, is that, like, nobody is saying that we want, like, a George Lucas special edition of The Shining or 2001. Nobody is saying we want this footage reincorporated into the film. But I do think considering that, like, like Kubrick did die, like, at age 70, like, I would imagine that most people would probably, like, God, he was born in 1929. He easily could have had another 10, 20 years in his life. I'm not saying he could have made more films in that time span, but it's the idea that, like, he might have done some interviews. He might have written a memoir. Yeah. There might have been some insights, and considering that he died unexpectedly, considering that there is more of his work out there, not that it should be, like, again, re 
integrate into his film against his wishes, it should be at least be accessible to learn to like get uh oh god more insights into how he thought. Yep. Exactly, and that's what drives me nuts. It's the arrogance of the people like Jean Harlan and Leon Vitale. Be like, no, we are we are the gatekeepers of Stanley Kubrick. You are not allowed in. And like Rob has said numerous times, it's like it's no. His works now belong to the culture, mm-hmm. and you are depriving us of this. And it's a very similar argument to like the George Lucas Star Wars thing, where it's like no. Once you release a film that people other than you have seen it, you don't get to take that back. It's like yep. you don't like. I, I'm not arguing that on like a legal property grounds. Like, yes, they like Warner Brothers technically sure. owns the film. They get the final say. But to like discuss this in like the arena of like cultural significance, like, oh, Kubrick took it out because he never wanted us to see it. Well, sure, but then he should never have released it in the first place. If he thought it was that bad, he should have pulled it out at the previous stops. I bet there's, oh God, probably scores of filmmakers that would love to go back during the film's release and pull things out. But Mm -hmm. they can't do that because that's not how you operate. And considering that this footage does survive, it it should be in a place where people can not access it, but at least should be... At the very least, maybe it's not on the Blu-ray release, but maybe it should be in a museum. Like, if you go to, like, I don't know, NYU, maybe there's there, there's a, oh, God, there's a copy of it there. Yeah, just, absolutely. Just for, like, make it, maybe, again, not for the Blu-ray release, but if you spend $60,000 a year on getting, like, a, a master's degree <laughs> yes. or a doctorate in film studies, then you can access it. Yeah, yeah, it should be in an archive somewhere. Somewhere, so some people, not just family member... And quasi-family member gatekeepers keep it away from the populace. Yeah, yeah, because nobody nobody's looking at this to use it to tear down Kubrick. They want to just understand. There's again, there's only so many Kubrick films in existence, and they're limited at that. This isn't exactly uh, John Ford who made hundreds of films. Mm-hmm. This is a man that pretty much all of his films you can count on your toes and fingers, and that's it. Yep. So absolutely, uh, that's okay. I know I deliberately gave myself a buffer for this or a very specific uh, time. Time uh, thing. I hope the Ted Bundy episode enjoyed being the longest episode ever for roughly holding that title for roughly two <laughs> weeks because uh, clearly this episode is going to usurp it. So, uh, folks, thank so you for- what? Oh, wait, what does this have to do with Doctor Sleep? Did we ever get to that? Oh, hollering about the fact that somehow how they. Oh, okay, silent, that was that was all you had about. Okay, well, okay. well, f Doctor Sleep. Like, no, like I rewatched that trailer and I was getting angry. I'm like, no, like f this yeah. movie. Um, remember, okay. folks, the sequel to The Shining is going to be. Uh, Danny and uh, little girl go to the Overlook to fight half vampire people and Jack Torrance, uh, Force Ghost. Um, it's gonna be awful. Like, like it's one of those movies. Like, I, I, we're not gonna, obviously based on what we're recording next. We're not going to be talking about it um, the thirty first. But it's something that maybe, maybe might be able to fit into the future, depending on how bad it is. <laughs> if it is, if it is really a sight to behold in a bad way, there's a very real possibility that uh, we'll get to it sooner rather than later. Okay. Okay. Indeed. All right, Rob. We are we are close. To, I think we, it's fair to say that we're going to have our second longest episode ever of Cinemodities. Yes. <laughs> so, with that being said, Rob, how are we going to conclude this week's episode? Um, so, I think there's only thing that's left is to end this episode with some reversed music by Chris Zoff Pendrecki, who does a lot of the music or has a lot of his music featured in The Shining. It's that great screeching chords and stuff like that. He's also featured in episode eight of Twin Peaks The Return. So let's get some of that really cacophonous no, Holocaust no inspired music in reverse. No, none of that womp, womp, womp. None of maybe that. To, maybe to end it out, because I always like to tail out the reverse stuff. 
Because if you just take something and put it in reverse, it usually just gets crazy and it like ramps up and then ends. So I can I can blend some of that together, you know, to uh, to uh, make it you know tail off. Oh, okay. So, you know, it, I try I try to make it peter out because I know our fans they they don't they don't come here for me. They don't come here for you. They come here for reversed music. There you go. <laughs> That's right on the money. <laughs>